Well, I figured they know that they're on the Crash Course or listening to the Crash Course podcast considering they're on the website. You don't, know that. You don't no, know that. No, Maybe they we're might a, be on shuffle. Maybe we're a stray MP3 that got lost trying to find its way home. Because like, the metadata was, was, was corrupted. See, see, the story's getting thicker. Yeah. And there's a lamp that's going to help us on our way back home. And a radio. Like and a radio right voiced there. by John Lovitz. There we go. The, the Brave Little Toaster. My favorite no, movie. no, no! It's it's the Crash Chords podcast. What are you talking about, <laughs> little toaster? He's off his rocker. Jeez, uh, man! Welcome back, guys, to another podcast. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. I'm Steve. So I don't have a lot to say before we get into our album because there's a lot to talk about with the album. Well, there's a lot I want to talk about at the top of the album. The rest remains to be seen. But I want to take a little moment to talk about my really interesting weekend out in Philly. Um, as I mentioned last week, the Wasties were playing in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Philly. And they played, as of we're recording, yesterday, um, so this, the Sunday previous to this episode coming out, time is wibbly-wobbly. Um, and it was really cool, actually, to be a part of a parade. I've never kind of seen that happen before. Alex, the drummer of the Wasties, actually has a pretty good quality camera that he lent me for the day, so I took a lot of photos of the band. Um, the float was a flatbed pulled by a truck. They set up the, the whole band in this flatbed. and uh, oh, It wasn't a self-powered flatbed? No. Some of them are. Some of them are. It, well, some of them are the flatbeds, the floats are the trucks. They're probably pretty pricey, though. How much do you think floats go for in the open market? I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, but it was interesting to see a band be a part of a parade. Of course, especially with the Wasties and it being St. Patrick's Day Parade, they made friends with the bands around them as we were parked ready to leave. A special shout-out to the Shanties, who, when the uh, Wasties were sound testing by playing one of their songs... This, the shanties chimed in and played along, and then vice versa. When the shanties were sound testing, the wasties played along. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, special shout out to Bill, who was the singer and flute player. Um, I've actually spoken to him online. He's probably going to come on autographs sometime eventually. A singer and flute player at the same time? Well, not at the same time. Okay. Alternatively. Okay. Like he takes but, turns. But I mean, like he'll sing and play the flute in the same in the same song. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot, a lot of lung capacity right yeah. there. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. Oh, and his flute playing was actually very impressive too, and very detailed, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, but not at the same time, right? The flute playing and the you can't sing with a flute in your mouth. Yes. I, yeah, I don't but know. you can blow it out your nose. You know a lot of strange people. Uh, yeah, it's true. I do not know strange. you. Multi-talented. Multi-talented. Yes. Yes. Multitaskers too. I'm yes. Multi-ta- I am not a multitasker. No. But if uh, he could actually play the flute and sing at the same time, that would be like a really amazing multitask right there. Or you'd have two mouths. Or whoa, whoa. one or thought, that. one thought at a time. <laughs> I like I said, <laughs> out the nose. Out the nose. Um, the hard part is breathing out your nose while talking. But yeah, the parade was about two hours. The Wasties played a rotation of six songs. And so like every time we would slow down or stop, people would dance and gather. It was it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. I had not been involved in a parade besides the Halloween parade in Manhattan in the village. But there's not a lot of music in that parade. It's just mostly people walking. Um, this was a lot of bands and other sponsored stuff. It's the village. It's all the entertainment you need. <laughs> right. 
Um, so yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Um, I'm hoping to speak to some of the shanties for autographs. They're from Philly, so maybe if they're ever in New York, we can bring them on the show too. But uh, but they were a great group of guys who played some really great music. So I would check them out. I believe it's theshanties.com is their website. And they mm -hmm. are on Facebook and Twitter as well. Yeah, come on, Matt. Grow our Philly fan base. Huh? <laughs> Philly fans. Philly fa I like. I, I want them to be our fans just so I can say that. We already have a Philly fan. Do we? Robert. But, he but listens he, to the show. But he was not originally from Philly, correct? Well, no. He's originally he's, not he's from a, New York yes. either, I don't think. Oh, well, then he's... Okay, he's off the grid, all right, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> or just from another city. No, he's, he's off the grid. If okay. you're not from the East Coast, who they are. At, at best, at, not at best, at worst, he's bilocational. But it's true. It's true. Which, which we accept that, you know, in, in our modern culture. They're, they're very accepted. Anyway. If real, only we can change a, that. You know, I'm not making this up. On. That's a real thing. I know right. it's a real thing. I'm moving on. The lobby for bi. Uh. <laughs> so we're going to get into this week's album. Um... And I want to just say a little piece about Marilyn Manson. Born Brian Hugh Warner. He was born in uh, 1969. I'm not good at math, so I'm not going to guess his age. He's an American musician, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, actor, painter, multimedia artist, and former music journalist. Why they list that? Well, I guess it's important. It's relevant. Um, he's, of course, best known for his controversial stage persona, which he's taken on as Marilyn Manson, even though originally he was performing under the name Brian Warner, and Marilyn Manson was the name of his band. That slowly shifted as he became a larger-than-life personality in front of that band. And with the name being a proper noun, it was very easy to put that on him. Of course, the name famously is a mashup of Marilyn Monroe and the Manson family leader, Charles Manson. He has nine studio albums to date. Um, I got into him around Smells Like Children, which was an EP. Um, the first album I ever bought with him, from him was Antichrist Superstar. Um, he's got a laundry list of big singles that he's put out over the years from covers like uh, Sweet Dreams and I Put a Spell on You and um, um, Personal Jesus to originals like Dope Show and um, Rock is Dead and... Um, Give Me Your Gun. He's an established artist who's done a ton of work. Um, I fell out of love with him when Eat Me, Drink Me came out after his greatest hits. That and The High End of the Low and Born Villain were not, all three of those were not great records. They were kind of stale and samey. Um, I'd heard good things about The Pale Emperor, which is the newest record we're reviewing today. Um, Rolling Stone talks about it's the best thing since Antichrist Superstar and feels a lot like that older record. We'll come back to that. Um, I think that the thing about Marilyn Manson um, that we'll get into really that always interested me about him is that his character I identified with because when I listened to him in high school he was designated a freak, a weirdo, someone who was an outcast and in high school I felt very much the same way. As a metalhead and a rocker I was often called slurs and bad words and terrible things and so I identified with someone even though I didn't always feel the way he did and I wasn't as angry as he was I identified with someone else who was an seemingly an outcast. Well, and then, of course, there's the flip side, because he's a very controversial figure, and I think a lot of that has to do with people who might just look at him at face value and say, yeah, he's, he's an odd-looking guy, therefore well, he's a freak. But I think sometimes it goes a little further than that. I think a lot of people do see him as a kind of, uh, as a kind of gimmick, 
you know that he puts on these airs, perhaps under the guise of that, you know, well, standing up for all the outcasts in the world. And he does have a lot of indictments against, uh, well, specifically against the Catholic Church, obviously that came out on Antichrist Superstar, um, mainly because he didn't really enjoy his own life growing up in a Catholic school, which I think a lot of people have come to that realization. I mean, people who had to go through the Catholic school experience, some people come out okay, and some people just come out with a real chip on their shoulder and because he had a voice he was able to really like bring that to the table so he has that following too which is sort of a for better or for worse kind of deal yeah yeah well also he was a target i mean him and eminem actually teamed up in the aughts because they were both made targets for for kids who had supposedly because of their music kids had killed themselves and they were martyred for it and they worked together to kind of fight back against that because it obviously wasn't true. The music had nothing to do with it. These kids had other problems that were ignored. But, you know, he stood up for what he believes is right in many capacities before. He's no stranger to that as well. Um, so the Pale Emperor was, you know, boasted as this return to form from Alan Manson. He's back to his old ways. He's, he's, the shock value's there and the, the music's supposed to be there. And it's supposed to be, again, Rolling Stone said the best thing since Antichrist Superstar, which is what a lot of people say was his best record. Whether that is true or not, we'll let you be the judge as you listen and follow along with us. Well, you're looking at his music through two lenses. You're looking at the music first and foremost, um, and then you're looking at the theme and the kind of messages he's really trying to get out there. Uh, And again, a lot of it can be controversial. Some of it is very on the nose. Let's start with the music, specifically with the first track, Killing Strangers. Now, the opening groove here, I gotta say, considering that I've heard, only heard a smattering of his pre- previous work, I've heard his, his cover of Personal Jesus, for instance, you know, uh, the Depeche Mode cover, even though mm-hmm. Depeche Mode released that in the late 80s, or maybe early 90s, this uh, came out around 2004, and I was just like, okay, it's a different take. Um, it kind of also goes toward the same theme that I mentioned earlier, because he sort of extrapolated from those lyrics, seems like this is a song I feel I should do. Um, but as far as the music was concerned, I sort of see him as this kind of, like, new metal figure a little bit. Yeah. He's got that, that vibe surrounding him. He's been known to influence certain artists, I think, like Nine Inch Nails. And, uh, it's, it, it's a very 90s-rooted sound. So to say this, like, return to form here, uh, to me is kind of an oddball thing. I, I was hesitant about saying return to form it's like okay well we're going back in time are we going back to the 90s i don't necessarily see that as a true advancement of music but i have to say that as of this first track killing strangers i think it was pretty approachable it had some spunk to it for a couple of reasons it yeah i hear the new metal roots but there's more to it than that first of all like this rugged combo of the of the kick drum and the bass now the bass for one is definitely patched if not it's probably just a straight up synth but the patching effect is the real nugget of intrigue here. It it lies in the way that it sonically tapers off at the end of the note, and that occurs with the kick drum at a fairly slow every other beat kind of pace. Now, the notes taper off really fast, like they were just suffocated out of existence. You get maybe two or three aftershocks of that bass, and then you're done. It's just, like, snuffed out silence. It's kind of the opposite of reverb in that sense. The space kind of closes in on these notes. And you could especially hear this in the very beginning and in Spells of Silence where extraneous instruments are absent. Furthermore, we have the beat itself. As I said, the bass and the kick are doubled for that note every other beat. But there's a pickup here for each beat that forms a kind of strut that you wouldn't get otherwise. Sort of a swing feel. And this becomes a recurring theme on this album in terms of beat work that's going to come. 
Uh, but you hear it here, and it's 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 pretty forceful for an opening track. It gives it this kind of human-like quality, a very attitude-driven strut, almost machismo, um, mainly because that swing feel divides things up by three. So your pickup occurs on what I believe is the, the third quaver of a triplet, as opposed to a more rigid, like, eighth note or sixteenth note. See, in the cases of an eighth note, you'd get this very stiff, like, you know, and one, and three, and one, and three. And you have the spaces where I'm leaving out the two and the four, but see, that's very stiff. It's a little mechanical. In a sixteenth, you get this, a one, a three, a one, a three. Still, it's still precise, but it's still very mechanical. But then when you add in the triplet there, it's like this triplet, 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 to feel that, that last element of that three divider, that, that lit, lit three, lit one. It's smooth. It's, it's this groove that I find just right in between those two figures. And it could be that I'm overanalyzing this and it's just a dramatic expression of that, but it sounds pretty regular and again, we get it quite a bit later. It seems to be a style that I've heard from him before, but I think because of modern mixing techniques uh, and the effect on that bass, I, I find it pretty impactful as of this uh, as of this foreign opener at least. His vocals on this track also are for better or for worse, no different than they'd been. One thing about Marilyn Manson, his voice has not really changed. He's he's curated it in a way, for better or worse, that he sounds like he always sounded. He stretches, he rasps, he's always had this kind of oozy, dripping, you know, very viscous voice when he sings evenly. And then he stretches it and cracks it when he yells, belts. Well, that's, that's another little comment of mine. If we're moving on to the voice, uh... I have to get this out in a very level-headed manner, because I know a lot of people, I think, would write off his voice as terrible. Like, it sucks, and I frankly don't buy that approach. I mean, you have to have some reasons behind this. Sure, he's not a traditionally uh, grounded vocalist. Um, he's got a, he, Obviously, his style is rooted to bring certain emotions to mind. Um, I do think it has some powerful applications. Uh... It's hard to describe. I, I'm going to try to describe it this way. It's kind of like how last week I was discussing Colin Malloy's voice and how it has been known to deter some people because of that little quiver of his. And yet I defend it because I happen to find it very endearing. Well, it's a similar deal here, but of course in the reverse. I don't really find this endearing. It's a little melodramatic at times. But still, that's not, that's not the, entirely the best analogy. I don't really find Manson's voice to be a deterrent necessarily. I think it, as I said, I think it has some powerful applications, most involving a kind of nihilistic vocalization of his lyrics. And I think that's where you get this sort of like drippiness, that quality that you, you described. It, it, that's how it sounds to me, is it strikes me as very like apathetic sometimes. Like he's caught up in, in something that he, he almost doesn't care to be caught up in. But there's a couple applications of what's going on here that both... Steve and Matt started talking about. Well, I'll tackle the vocals first. And one is, I'm a little tired of the whispers. His, his tendency to go down to the lower levels, and in this case we're getting, you better run, you better run. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of this. That's sort of like a separate, a separate track. He like steps in with that as like the call and response deal. It's yeah, the theatricality that he's always used. But it comes off as a little fake. Uh, fake's not the, the the correct word. It's insincere. It exactly. That's ex that's that's it in in a nutshell. Well, it's it, the repetition and the echo work that that kind of works into. It's not any backup vocalist or something like that that may be chanting along with him or trying to reiterate his point. He's trying to reiterate that line and considering the amount of repetition that it appears in these lyrics and the amount of 
just trying to really home in on a very specific point that he's waxing eloquence on, it's it comes off a little bit too heavy-handed in this instance. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you're going by like the way I described it as being kind of nihilistic, I, I again, I feel like it can be it can be very applicable, especially for a track like this. It sounds very embittered and apathetic, and a little bit tortured at times. And actually, I think his voice shined through uh, in several instances as we go. I'll, I'll cite them later. But I do think, and this is where I'm agreeing with you, John, I think there's a limit to my threshold for that kind of shtick before it develops into a cliché. Now, add that to a 30-year career, and very often I just kind of end up laughing at it. Like, that, that Marilyn Manson has been... He's been panned a lot, you know, in the media for exactly that same reason. Oh, he's a freak. But it's really not that with me. It's not this vindictive kind of laughter. It's it's more of a lighthearted laughter at a very a very tiresome trope. Like I said, similarly, I laugh at Colin Malloy's quiver. That's very lighthearted, but it's kind of like in a, in a wait-for-it situation. He doesn't quiver his way through entire songs. It's phrase-adorning. With Manson, though, I feel a sense of it being a little bit static. But now that's as an overall description of the way I've heard most of his music throughout the years. And I'll, again, cite this as we go. But particularly in this track, I found it was reaching some heights. I'll point out a couple of, of, uh, a couple of instances. Because the lyrics here, first of all, we start out, This world doesn't need no opera. We're here for operation. We don't need a bigger knife. And then that whisper, you get a bigger knife. Because we got guns, we got guns, we got guns. Now, this is this is one where he starts almost getting nasal as he goes. The three repetitions of that. We got guns, we got guns. He gets a little bit more guttural at times. It's, it's kind of like this false machismo, you know, that fits along with the stride in the background. So I was still very much digging it at this point. The same thing happens with, you know, you better run, you better run. This time he goes for a whisper instead. So there's more diversity here, frankly, than I've heard previously, as far as his work is concerned. Um, but it really takes off, I think, right around that that second verse, or if you see it as a pre-chorus, whichever. We're killing strangers, we're killing strangers. We're killing strangers so we don't kill the ones we love. And right there, on that word, He repeats love in a very broken, high-register fashion, at least high-register for Marilyn Manson, so much to the point that it kind of broke my rule, as I stated about him, that he's sort of generally uh, monophonic, he stays in the same register, and it kind of just, you know, glides along. It can be grating to some, but in this particular case, he reached to the soul. It was very emotive. It stepped out of his shoes. It stepped out of, um, it stepped out of, out of the, the kind of... static nature of this track, which, I mean, it depends on how you see it. It's a very overall emotive kind of undertone. The framework is emotive, but it's still stabilized. But these are the moments that really provide intrigue within that framework. To talk about something else that Steve brought up earlier about the combination of the kick drum, the deep bass, which I agree was very strong. The flourishes on top, the additional work that was on top, just got to be a little bit too repetitive. It was a very stable texture on top of everything else that, honestly, I don't feel like it really matched the deep guttural nature of even that simple, almost metronome of the beat work. Even when he was varying, even with the little things like the triplets. I mean, that 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 part, the heavy percussion, I really did enjoy it did all the things you said it did, but I feel like a lot of the other pieces just weren't living up to those sort of expectations that the 
the, the initial instruments we're really putting forth. Well, we get some nice comping instruments. For instance, in the chorus, the guitar steps in in the left ear um, with a pretty interesting motif, just in this sort of like DFDE thing. Um, you know, it's like a 1 3, 1 2, so you're kind of going around the minor scale here, but staying low, staying reserved. I think it was a tasteful, uh, tasteful comping for the chorus itself. Um, and then, of course, there's, there is just those singular moments of his vocals that I like. But then there's this, the overall, I think, strut of this track. I was able to keep me invested, I think, so much that I was curious to see wh where else he would take this style. Um, it's already clear that a lot of things are, it's either your taste or not. And coming in as, as a person with not necessarily my taste, I was at least intrigued at this point. I thought that maybe, well, this is Manson for the modern era. It's good to address that from all sides of the coin, but this is where I was standing at the beginning. I think also, speaking to what Steve was saying, I think that this song, especially compared to the rest of the record, didn't feel repetitive at all. I was engaged from start to finish. I really went along, and that beat work and the bass work especially is what kept me intrigued. It was different enough from his previous work to feel interesting and a little unique, but still similar enough to the kind of work that he did that didn't feel completely divorced from what we know as Marilyn Manson. Um, I felt it fit really well into his repertoire, and it got me invested early. And the vocal stuff, Steve's absolutely right. You either like it or you don't. There's really no middle ground, and I like Marilyn Manson's voice. I like the way he sings. He's not the best singer I've ever heard. He's not my favorite singer of all time. I just enjoy the way he sings. I always have. I think it's because he goes into that deep bass very often, and that deep bass is something that I used to imitate a lot growing up because it's how I f kind of felt comfortable singing. And now I, I do want to point out something that honestly will become a theme for my uh, review of this album, the content of the lyrics. Now, I don't like a lot of the things that are done just in this genre of um, more towards metal orientation, just in the, the heavier or scarier genre that, that exists out there. But in this case, while on the nose... His lyrics to me aren't the best in the world. I really enjoy the subtext of this song, very much so. Especially even though we get a lot of repetition of it, but the chorus itself, we're killing strangers, we're killing strangers, we're killing strangers, so we don't kill the ones that we love. The way it's presented and what it's surrounded by actually reads to me the idea of taking out the frustrations of life upon the people you don't know. Those guys that give they get into fender benders with you or that spill your coffee cup at the the local bistro or something like that those are the people you blow up at but you don't bring it home you use that as a sort of a, a safety valve a release so that you don't bring it home and take it out on your fans and your your friend your friends and your family it's it's a little bit of a different take than what i normally think of when i think of marilyn Manson lyrics it's also something I can actually get behind right away because for me it was kind of staring me in the face that there was this heavy subtext of sort of an effed up situation but one that does lead to a little bit of good I, I thought it was more a little more on the nose than even that though like I thought it was more blatantly like gun laws <laughs> yeah and people like people killing cops cops killing people this idea of strangers shooting strangers you know because i wouldn't say cop specifically well, i wouldn't i i mean I, it's not cop specific. broader a lot of people let me get finish this. my sentence i wasn't done i was saying that it's not just that i'm saying that's a part of it though 
Okay, but there's no evidence in the text here specifically for cops of any Correct. Kind. I That's wasn't why I didn't there was. feel the need to bring that up. Oh. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, like, gun laws in general are really big in the news these days. The yeah. idea that a gun has become a symbol of, like, oh, well, you know, well, you're a man if you carry that around. But are you really? Because, of course, that, that's not really quite. It's kind of like overshooting it, especially in the face of people who might not bring as much to the table. But then again, there's the flip side and the argument is well like perhaps if people were a little more prepared in this instance a lot of like pro-gun law people really do have that 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 take that it's like if you bring it along then you can sort of stop situations occurring I but i think a lot of it comes as very tongue-in-cheek if this is where you're going and i frankly the more and more you look at this i really think i'm more with john i don't think this is so on the nose with um uh with the gun law idea because it just seems so blatant. But you see how if you were going to take it that way, and as most listeners who don't read subtext um, are probably going to take it this way, well then people are going to take it as as a real, you know, pro-machismo song, which is absolutely ridiculous because it, it there, there would be no... There'd be no endearing qualities about that if that's the case. It literally, it's a call to arms. It's it's promoting conflict. I can't get behind that. I only meant if, if you're taking it that way. I only I mentioned the cop thing because cop the shooting uh, shooting of cops was very recent in the news and it was related to guns specifically. I'm not saying he's saying that that he, it's about shooting cops. I'm just saying in the news most recently, guns and gun laws had come up with that. That's all. That's what I was mentioning. Right. Well, You're absolutely right. It's not connected to the lyrics at right. all. Right. And then if that's the case, then, of course, it would be a really, really heavy-handed political bent. We're killing strangers. We're killing strangers. And then you're you're really stating, staking your claim on what you yeah. feel about cops if that was the case. But In this case, like, if you were going literal, it almost reads, and I don't like using this word and comparing it or anything like that, but it almost reads as sort of like a homeland terrorist type of a thing. I mean, frankly, yeah, we're that, packing demolition, we can't pack emotion, dynamite, we just might. So blow us a kiss, blow us a kiss, blow us a kiss, we'll blow you to pieces. And yeah. then we're killing strangers. You cannot take this literally. And that's something that I think is a little bit of a detractor that... I just don't buy that. I just don't buy that's his angle. Oh no, I don't think it's his angle either. I don't. I don't think the audience is that dumb either. Exactly. I don't think that the audience that knows Manson will take it literally. But if you're just stepping into it, it's not something that you really want to hear on the radio. But at the same time, you go the second level. And that, that's the satire, of course. And I still don't really buy it as this, like, you know, oh, he's breaking ground, you know, in terror. For instance, we, no. we've been getting a lot of this in the media lately. We sure. recently got a little bit of it on uh, Black Messiah by D'Angelo yes. and the Vanguard. We got it there. Um, but again, that's even only if you're invoking the cop thing. If you're just invoking gun laws in general, then, like, as a satire, the tracks functions to to take, again, this very, like, kind of a dismissive attitude of the other side. Now, I know, obviously, if you have an opinion, you have, like, you're going to be fairly dismissive, but it's not terribly artistic. I mean, he's just being, there's that attitude for the sake of attitude, that that brashness for the sake of brashness. Well, being so overblown about it, killing strangers, you know, that's what they do. It's, it's I don't know, the satire, I think, is is also fairly uncreative. If you Go further, though, and that's where John started, th- thankfully, because he's an intellectual. I try. Yeah. I just, I, I, I just said that. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, if you, if you take it that way, I think that's a much more appropriate angle. And then all of a sudden, the track takes on a new, a new, new levels, and it becomes a borderline um, brilliant track just in terms of presenting the idea that, well, it's what you take home with you. We pack demolition. We can't pack emotion. 
I mean, all of a sudden now, all these different words start to carry on new meaning. And it doesn't have anything to do with just the times or current events. It's more of an, it's more of a, a broader statement about, about how we handle with how do we handle anger? And I think the structure of the lyrics, though, allows you to kind of put any angle on it that you can kind of envision. Like, the, the, the cops being shot thing is not so far-fetched because it can fit within the framework. Even though it's likely to the side that what John said, definitely the lyrics being structured in the way they are give you that kind of freedom to kind of see it as you will based on current events. Right, and so, I only say brilliant again because he, he may actually approach approach the track knowing that people are going to take it, you know, one level, then the next, and then perhaps arrive at his intention. Yeah. But, again, you gotta be really, you gotta know your fans, and also you gotta be really, uh, really crafty with your art. So I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitant on even using that word, you know, brilliant, because it's the kind of thing that should really hit everybody at once in the craftiest way possible, and I just don't know if this will. Yeah. If that's the case. And it's hard to really say, too, because, I mean, we've had three sort of very different views of it just here. So it could hit the audience the same way. Right. And that's just as an opening track, especially if he wants to, you know, really hammer home the uh, the, the statement of it all. I, I, he's got other statements later on here, but they tend to get more introverted. Going on to track two, Deep Six. This started out with a fairly interesting dark intro, kind of this electronic sound art. You get these little gurgles in the background, these metallic sounds, and it's sort of one layer after the other. It started culminating in sort of a whirling storm of these notes. It was a distant storm. It still stayed on the deeper, darker, and kept its its actual distance from the, the track itself. This, this is really positive. In the beginning, yes. You get a fun guitar, and some percussions that are that are really cool on top of that. There's a, it builds very well in the beginning of the track. Well, those are two layers. The guitar starts, it's, it was interesting. It was more of a brighter guitar, a little bit gothy, but kind of with that 90s misery. And then we move on to the drums, which is a little bit fast-paced. You, it, very reminiscent of the 80s here, that sort of drum hi-hat, drum hi-hat. And then um, you could almost call that kind of a punk vibe. But it's still kind of dug at this point. Maybe not so much as if they just dwelled more completely within the... Uh, Within the netherworld of the of the opening riffs and the and the the sound art, but still, this was a nice groove. Um, still, one more layer, and that's his vocals. Uh, kind of back to typical Manson here. It made me retreat a bit just because I really didn't see the emotional heights that perhaps the previous track reached utilizing his vocals. But then we go for the hook, and this is when the heavy metal distorted guitar just dropped with the drum. The emphasis suddenly a lot more on the crash cymbals, and this is just that kind of courtesy metal sound that I, I know all too well at this point, and I just wasn't having it. To me, I, I, I think it was that they kind of fudged up a, a, a really intriguing intro. Because um, it really never retreated at this point. It never went back to that intro. It was just once no. it hit the height, the intro, it stayed. The intro seemed kind of like a courtesy to get to point A, even though it was the more interesting of the part. Um, the, yep. ba- the bulk of the track then goes into atypical 90s material uh, Manson track. It feels very much of Antichrist Superstar or Mechanical Animals. It's got that sound, that kind of aura about it. His vocals take the same way. Has It goes into this high-energy, heavy track. And while quality-wise, it's everything that was in the 90s. It didn't really expand on it or say much more. It became a tropey track for it, me. It did become a very tropey track, but... There's a lot to list, too, it's very, in this case. Besides going super heavy, 
which, yeah, stays there and stays exactly there. From the verses to choruses to the pre-chorus, everything was almost formulaic in its, in, its, in its actual progression. You know exactly when the pre-chorus starts because of the chords that are played right there. You know when the chorus proper starts because of what's being sung. Just a repetition of deep six, six, six feet deep. Deep six, six, six feet deep. Come, come on, I don't, I don't like these sort of repetitions. And then there's just the overall sound of it, that it just comes across as being very old school. I mean, I'm not arguing that there isn't a heavy metal market these days for that, but even them, I think they've matured a bit. I think they're looking for something beyond this. Um, the pre-choruses themselves, again, very tried and true. There was that guitar solo in the background, which has got that sort of kind of in-your-face 80s guitar feel, but it's, it, it's, it's snuffed out at this point. It's the same riff, I think, that was there earlier on, right? That first guitar mm-hmm. riff that was there by itself, but instead, this time, it's just sort of clouded. It's, it's in the distance, uh, left ear, I believe, and, you know, it's not really... It's not really providing anything, I think, at this point. And then by the time we get to the choruses, it's just a plain metal guitar riff, um, plus a lot of screaming, almost to the caliper of, of Marilyn Manson doing ACDC, but with more echo. So, I don't know. I didn't really see the overall appeal of this track, I think, um, in a 2015 world. Well, there there are a couple of things I do like talking about. Specifically, there's one line that really stood out, stood out to me as... And a really good imagination piece. It's like a stranger had a key, came inside my mind, and moved all my things around. I love that. That is a great description of a mental state. But the next line, but he didn't know snakes can't kneel or pray, tried to break the psych down, yeah. I don't know where that one's coming from. This is... When we start delving into the esoteric lyrics, his this metaphors when, are getting a little mixed here. This is when you start sort of going into the the three different ways in which we took the first track. Um, some of them probably more in the nose than others, and it's like here you see him doing this on on line by line, and it strikes me as as that kind of lyric um, that intentionally is supposed to be buried in the abstract. And that's never really the greatest songwriting. It's never really the greatest poetry. That's, that comes across to me as the angsty, you know, like high school level poetry when you're trying to bury your idea, forgetting that that's, the, that's not the point of poetry at all. The point is to be on the nose, but simply state it in a way that makes your reader think. Um, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this really inspires me to think very much. I think it's... If a stranger had a key, came inside my mind and moved all my things around, but he didn't know the snakes can't kneel or pray, try to break the sight down. Yeah, you're right. It's just I, I feel like kind of like he jumped the shark here. In this case, jumped the snake. Well, you also get the bridge, and this is something that's kind of indicative of this style of music. Love is evil. Con is confidence. Eros is sore. Sin is sincere. First off, love is evil is reversing the word love and evil and slight tweaking. Eros's sore is just completely taking the word Eros and flipping it around for sore. Khan is confident, Sin is sincere. These are really not, like, reaching metaphorically. These are not really reaching literally. It's, it's, mm, it's a little bit trope. Actually, it's a lot of bit trope in this situation. This is the sort of thing you kind of get with those deep... I think deep... the word trope is going to become a trope in this conversation. <laughs> Maybe. It's, it's the sort of things you get from those really deep, introspect- introspective kids in their high school years. Yes, but all that said, and... Or extrapolating it's... from the major mythology, that too. You know what Zeus said to narcissists. All of this said, though, 
and it's all absolutely correct. The tropes, the repetitiveness, the the predictability. I still enjoyed the track. And I think that just comes from a personal place of it sounded exactly like what I remember Manson fondly of in the early to mid 90s. And I think this track conveys it. And so I enjoyed it not because of quality or because of, ta- of taste in good music per se. It's taste of something that it's I familiar. remember. It's familiar. That's and perfectly okay. I find that fr- uh, very acceptable, but it's a very wishy-washy argument for why this song actually exists. Well, why yeah. something like this would work. Oh, this song shouldn't probably exist at all, but as a single, I mean, <laughs> if you want to make it as a single, make a song that sounds like your old familiar stuff as your it's single. It's a good hook yeah. to get the, the your your listeners back into your music again. Well, but, it's like I said earlier about those, you know, the listeners, They, I feel like they've grown up most for the most part. They're looking for newer stuff in the metal world. Um, but even they, yes, are probably going to want that little throwback. That'll be great if, if it's uh, just the track, but we have others on this album, and it's, it's, it's really a question of how many times you're going to do that. You mentioned the Rolling Stone, Stone interview of saying this is the best thing uh, since Antichrist Superstar, but is that just because it's like Antichrist Superstar? I mean, you it's know, not, that's, though. That's, that's never, the problem, yeah. is that okay. it's not. There's more innovation in Antichrist Superstar, I think, for the time than there is in this whole right. album. But that said... There is uh, the way he ends this track... Um, something he, he does a little bit later, but it's uh, just these plain vocals. He sort of reduces it plainly to that you want to know what Zeus said to Narcissus, and he gets really, really slow and trolling this out almost needlessly. And it's no no instruments, just that. The near-sighted um, singing, yes. Yeah, the near-sighted singing, exactly. And then it just boils down to, do you know what Zeus said to Narcissus? And I think, you'd better watch yourself is the line. Even that's from the very beginning of the verse. It's just a repeat of that verse. And even that line I almost strikes me as like, why invoke the, do you know what Zeus said to Narcissus? If the only thing you're building to is the line, you'd better watch yourself. It makes me, it, it makes me feel like it's a, a again, pointless mythology. Um, it so really... there's the melodrama creeping in, and it's starting to hit me full force at this point. It, it's It's just... Who's Zeus? Who's Narcissus? Like, there's a story going on here, but we know who they are. But it's just like, why invoke it? Yeah, there's no. That's context. a very grand context. Yeah, a, a grand context, especially for like you know just one person's blight. Um, let's go on to track three. Third day of a seven day binge. Now this is something very personal. We're just talking about a binge, and it's it's you know this is the last time in which you'd want to invoke something grander. And I think he really does keep this more brooding. At least this was my first impression of the track. I think I think that, in general, I enjoyed this more than the previous track just because it took a step down. It wasn't as brash. But that's not to say that, you know, musically it was, like, really breaking boundaries. It actually took a step back in many ways. It makes it more simpler than the previous track. Oh, Frankly, the... the, the the intro, I'll, I will say the intro, I did like the way the guitar is built. That was a major thing, just for the intro. I liked the way it started fairly plain, but then the guitars step in with a riff in the right ear, for one, and then, in a piece of fin- fantastic production work, starting in the left ear, there's these distant, distorted, distorted guitars that just sort of creep toward you, forward, not just in terms of volume, but you get the impression that they're stepping forward in the mixing from the distance. And both guitars, even the one, the, the more rhythm-based in the right ear, was uh, the, both of them are very tinny, very bright. I, I love that, especially in contrast with the bass, even though the bass itself was boring as hell. Oh, and it's this is where so we get into safe. It's just 
what four chords at most no it's not even most of this this for this track it's actually just sort of kind of staying on the tonic a lot of it it's just staying on one the the rhythm you get is just the sort of and one and three and one and three very similar in fact to the very first track in terms of in terms of strut uh except a little bit more mechanical in this instance and then when you get to the verses i mean they're very plain as a whole. I, I, the guitars, frankly, I wish it was a more prevalent element. They are still there. You hear them in the first verse, and they have this sort of distorted twang to them. I love the way they step forward, and they do continue do, to do a similar thing throughout the remainder of the track, except for the fact that they're, they're kind of beholden to the rhythm. I think, I think that might be it. It's also the fact that in the opening instance, it felt like they were really the character. And then later on, when his vocals are present, then they're not the character anymore, they're just support. And I feel like, because they were the most powerful element, by the time we discuss his vocals, I mean, I, I think it's just like, his vocals are it's similar to the last track. They're Mans Marilyn Manson vocals. They're not doing the same like outlandish thing as in the first track. I don't have those singular points to say, ah, he's stepping out. Well, but even in the previous track, there was some variation to the way he was singing a bit, whereas in this, he's literally singing evenly and hollowly the whole time. Hollowly? That sounds weird. I feel like that's actually a word, though. Yeah. Go for it. Go with it. Go with it. Let's go with it. But the biggest problem with this is the best thing about it, question mark? Steve mentioned that because of its hollowness and its evenness, it really does feel like the third day of a seven-day binge. Imagine a That's binge the, of seven the days. Flip side. The setting is so strong here because if you're that strung out, you're not going to be wild. But by the first, second day, maybe. But by the third day, you're eased into this high, this, this strung out mode, and you're just kind of stuck in it. This repetitive nature, this plannedness, this falling this flatland almost and but like, it's so unenthusiastically presented but if you but if you're trying to depict an unenthusiastic moment you do it unenthusiastically it goes back to that drama and this this want to fill a role but here's the whole thing it's more breaking the fourth wall for me here because i don't feel like he's committing it i it's it feels more like he just so happens to make this song as opposed to trying to tell the emotional state. I feel like there's a disconnect between his vocals and the actual song. Like, he went a little bit too far. Maybe, I guess. I mean, my biggest problem with the song is, like Steve said, it's completely repetitive, and a lot of it's boring. It falls very flat on well, itself. Well, it's got, it's got <laughs> la la lyrics that are just straight-up tripe. I mean, it's ridiculous how boring the lyrics themselves are. Well, and that's another thing that bothers me. If you're going to be something... And this is all about how he's getting over someone by drinking himself to death. Or what have you. We've only reached the third day of our seven-day binge, and I can already see your name disintegrating from my lips. And he keeps repeating that. Half a dozen times. There's, it's, it's more than half the lyrics of the song. It's the verse. It's not even a chorus of any sort. The verse, I've got bullets in the booth, rather be your victim than be with you. I don't understand the connection between the first half and second half there. I mean, yeah, I can make one up, but here I really don't 
I don't really want to because it's not really invoking anything for me because of how deadpan he is doing this. I would see some sort of release. If someone's name is disintegrating from his lips, that's a nice, powerful idea, but it's just pounding that idea in over and over and over again that the emotion that might have been there is just so numbing for me. I feel nothing for this track. Well, it's, it depends again on the levels in which you in which you encounter this track, in which you listen to it. It just as Matt said, you know, I I, I, I did notice, especially when you take into account those lyrics and and the title, that yeah, if it's a binge and and if you can hear him kind of just in a, in a in a sort of deadened state, then you could argue, yeah, sure, it's a very appropriate track. And the funny thing is the first time I listened to it, like I said, it felt a little bit more earnest uh, from that standpoint than, for instance, the previous track did. I felt like I was coming from more of a place that that he could he could speak about personally. He's not invoking the same, you know, grand, uh, grand concepts. Instead, this is just very local. Great, can relate. Um, but... The problem is, of course, presentation. I also found, if I'm not enjoying the presentation, then it's it's true he may have actually succeeded, but it's 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 really not the greatest way to sort of it, it bridge your album together, to bridge together content pieces. You follow me? Yeah, I I understand. I mean, I don't know. I think that we're we're at a point now where we're already seeing starting to see holes in the Swiss cheese. And it, they weren't hard to see to begin with. I did like a couple things. I mean, I liked the reservation of the guitars, even though I wanted them to be more like in the beginning. I still thought it was at, in a tasteful reserved state. Um, I do think that the production <clears throat> work in general is excellent, probably just in terms of knowing how to mix Manson's vocals at this point with respect to his surroundings. I feel like it's something that they may have struggled with over uh, a, a few years. Um, to figure out how to accomplish that because his voice is so often disconnected. Again, going back to that sort of apathetic, uh, nihilistic state. And then following the, the sort of verse-like bridge, we get a return of the guitars. Great element. Again, much like the beginning in this case. Very tortured, very dense. And then the vocals return in a similar fashion. Very tortured, very dense. And I'm not being sarcastic here because we get those vocals in both ears now. He's giving us Marilyn Manson, twice the Marilyn Manson. And I thought that was a nice moment, but it's still like, I feel like in the greater context of this track, it's grasping for straws. Yeah, I mean, on, on a whole, the track is repetitive, and it's unfortunate that this won't be the first time that that happens. Um, but the, I think there's a good place to move on to the next song, which I will try not to butcher, the Met- Mephistopheles? Yes, Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles of Los Angeles. Um, this is another song with a fairly strong setting, uh, tonally to begin with. Um, it's not as flat as the last track. We get a little bit of accents in the music. The guitar steps forward a little more here than it was. It didn't relegate itself to the background as much. Vocally, it's classic Manson again. And structurally, too. I mean, my biggest problem with this song, I think, on the whole, is that he's trying to be a storyteller here, but the lyrics don't really suit it. And musically, it also kind of flips the emotionale, which, as we talked in the Him episode, which was... Him episode was episode 46 and their album Tears on Tape. When when Vela would sing a song that was like depressing but the music was fast paced and energetic, it threw it off. And we experienced that here. And I only compare them because they're both bands that are prone to hitting very interesting emotional points. They also invoke storytelling. Like them also uh, Judas Priest, you know, yeah. uh, episode uh, 105. 
Um, they invoke storytelling and by bringing in major characters, and one of them is Mephistopheles. And John, how about you fill us in? Mes- Mephistopheles, because I will be the one to mess this word up, is the devil from the Faust legend. Um, Faust trades away his soul, and it's usually this devil that is the one that gains it, that's, that, that makes the deal. And in return, he gives Faust uh, ultimate knowledge, unending pleasures, all sorts of really random things, depending upon the German lore. But at the same time, it, it, it gave birth to the idea of Faustian, sacrificing your moral code in short-term gains. You, well, maybe you're going to lie to your constituents, but as a politician, sometimes you can then achieve something that it benefits you or your constituents better in, in other ways. The problem here... And this is my first major problem, but if this is really just a nitpicking, literally, he is not the Mephistopheles of Los Angeles in this song. He's Faust. The entire story is about this gentleman who is aggressive, was passive, was pathetic, was growing to be something better, and now he feels stoned and alone like a heretic, and I'm ready to meet my maker. Lazarus has got no dirt on me, and I'll rise to every occasion. He's not speaking from the devil's point of view. This well, is Faust, and it's but, but it's weird, and it's something that I brought up before mm. in other literary references. It it pees me a little bit. Yeah, but you know what? Now that I look at it, just because it's the title of it is referencing the Mephistopheles, Faust is part of that story. So him singing from the perspective of Faust just means that he's a a character within that story. There's the nothing problem. That, there's no, nothing, no, no, no. Right? Don't even start it. He says the line, I'm the Mephistopheles of Los Angeles of Los Angeles. So no, no, he messed up. I saw where you're going with that argument. It's right at the end of the song. Okay? All right. Okay. That's just an oddball thing and that, that, that just bothers me and I have to point that. But at the same time, we get a nice motion in the guitar, but really simple drums, and it's really nice and soft and sad in the beginning, even though he's trying to be aggressive lyrically. When it goes into the more aggressive aspect of the the music itself, that's when he starts taking a step back and really retreating from that stance. I'm ready to meet my maker. Why is he ready to meet his maker? Why is he kind of feeling stoned and alone like a heretic? Why is he doing this machismo, is a word we've used already a couple times tonight, and losing it lyrically. You know, it is a very odd uh, odd split here in this track, and I, I'm kind of in a, in a few different places on it. First of all, I really did like the music in the beginning. I thought, uh, again, oh, I was reaching it. back to that 80s like alleyway music video guitar sort of... Um, comes in in the left ear, it's very this very heavy reverb, thick, like it's playing in the rain or something. Um, and and the riff itself is really fantastic. It's it's a longer, more melodic riff where an A minor creeps longingly up to B, then depressingly back to like this this blue note between the flat five and the four, finally down to three, finally down to one. Um, then the rhythm guitar steps in in the right ear. Could even be a bass, but it's very tinny, so you know it could just be a low guitar doing a bass line. But then the drums. I think once they step in, that's when I start to pull back a little bit. They keep this song really rigid because, again, we step forward with that whole, like, swing thing. There's that, that machismo as we keep sort of seeing it as because every single time it comes back, it sort of has this strut to it. The tambourine kind of matches with the drum, and you just sort of get this one, two, lit three, four, lit... And here I say lit because, of course, repeating the third instance of the triple lit, you know, so that's your third 
quaver. Same swing thing over and over and over again. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I liked the intro so much that I was very disappointed when that came back in full force. Because again, when you bring in his vocals along with that, they're just very static to me. And and I, then there's that split, that split between the, the, the attitude of the chorus, which really stepped out of the brood. I think, I think the chorus was very flouting. And considering the sort of sad, rainy opening riff, I thought something just wasn't really matching up right here. You look specifically the lyrics, the opening verse, for instance, I don't know if I can open up. I've been opened up enough. I don't know if I can open up. I'm not a birthday present. I'm aggressive-aggressive. Little play and passive-aggressive. The past is over. Now the passive seems so pathetic. Are we fated, faithful, or fatal? I kind of like these lyrics. Let me go into, I'm feeling stoned and alone like a heretic. And I'm ready to meet my maker. I feel soul and alone like a heretic. I'm ready to meet my maker. Lazarus has got no dirt on me. Lazarus has got no dirt on me. And I'll rise to every occasion. I'm the Mephistopheles of Los Angeles. Of Los Angeles. I don't know. When you look at the whole thing, I, I think that lyrically this is very... This is very... It, it has continuity. I think for the most part, this is portraying a character who in general, feels broken. And I think he's consistently broken. I don't think that's really changed up. And the opening, the, 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 the intro, the music in the beginning, really did match up with that. By the time we move into the chorus, the music picks up a little bit. Maybe this is just because, well, this is his, this is his song. Choruses are typically times in which you break out with the, the greater simplification of what's going on with you. But I, I, I felt like that was, that was improper in this case. The main split, I feel, is simply that comparison to Mephistopheles. And the only, the only explanation I have here is because there are alternate uh, interpretations of Mephistopheles. For instance, one I came across is that he, in some sense, is sort of trapped in his own hell by serving the devil. So that he is kind of beholden to the devil's <clears throat> whims. And that he's not the character that, you know, it's no often faust against Mephistopheles. But in many ways, Mephistopheles is sort of beholden to another greater thing. It's like, well... He is to Faustus to Mephistopheles, what Mephistopheles is to the devil. Therefore, it's sort of seeing himself in a grander sense. But that's not to say that I disagree with you, John. I still think you're correct because of that analogy. I do think he is Faust, and I find it a little bit, <laughs> I find it a little bit distasteful that he had to sort of take that step up. If you're pretty much accomplishing the same thing by just saying, oh, if you're Faust or if you're Mephistopheles, if you're going by that analogy, then I see it as kind of. Again, melodramatic. It does just seem like a lot, considering the content, and it's not, it's just not put together as well as one would hope with the framework that was provided. And, and there's, that can be disappointing. There's other things that I, I really kind of, musically, that really threw me in this track. The bridge, if you could even call it that, was kind of a throwaway. I like the heavier percussion here, but this was, it was like this muffled, sort of possessed repetition of the chorus um, with slightly different chords though but it repeats the same thing I'm feeling stoned and alone like a heretic and I'm ready to meet my maker I feel soul and alone like a heretic this could have just been a repetition of the chorus but at the same time the music kind of like it, it muffled up like it was going to go into something different here but instead it just picks it right back up he always manages to like insert these little retreats these soft moments that have potential but then nope we have to go right back on cue chorus just as strong as it was and i i, I don't know i'm just that's a predictable arc for me in the course of the track from here we go to track five warship 
my wreck, warship instead of worship, which, you know. I pointed out to him. I didn't really get it first, but, I mean, I get it. Instead of uh, worshiping a god, it's a warship in a battle. I mean, See, someone knows. It's yeah. like, I know what you're doing. But that said, this is actually probably one of the more interesting tracks on the record. The The way it intros with this kind of even drone, he's invoking these soundscapes again that we know he's good with because he's done some interesting things with, albeit brief, in other tracks. That intro drone does give way to some unique and interesting keyboard notes. Um, I tried to call them chords, which is wrong, and Steve corrected me. Um, but I like the mix of the drone, the sound, boy, sound bites, and the keyboard working together to make a very interesting rhythm and soundscape that we'd not really heard on the record in this detail. It's, it's kind of like a it, sci-fi movie, sort yeah. of. Yes. And it builds. That's the other big thing. This is undergoing actual evolution instead of abrupt additions. Well, we don't realize that yet. Just as, the, as, as of the beginning here, I mean... You're sort of given the backdrop of a movie setting, like something is lurking in the background. You could strike it as, as sci-fi, a little bit horror maybe, and then gradually that's replaced by that sort of single thump, and then the synth, and then the piano contrasting of both extreme ends of the keyboard, just here and there, and, and it's, very, it's very sparse at this point. I, I enjoyed it. The vocals, again, kind of right on cue, served to take me out of it a little bit more. I mean... I, I know that's kind of uh, <laughs> that's kind of cruel, but it's like Manson's vocals. As I said in the very beginning, when they're not at their extreme ends, then just sort of in this like flatline state in which he typically sings, they they don't really hoist up a track for me. I think very often I like the spaces between them. Um, but overall, that intro. When you combine that bass, the thump, the sort of groaning guitar, and this kind of like metallic sounds in the background, almost like bowing, like a violin bowing against the bridge really harshly, um, and then distorted after that. They, they, they serve to provide a framework for the next several sections that are really just expansions on the same exact section. The verses themselves, they're kind of like a slow creep instead of just this set form, and I enjoyed that despite finding little discrepancies like the descending bass and the chord progression. It's a little predictable. But, but despite that, there was still a little bit more mystique about this. By the time we get to the second verse, again, sort of a similar iteration, the guitar riff steps in over the same format, but this time we get the crash cymbals, right? And that's pretty steady throughout. Still, it's just a more intense version. And that's sort of where I got this idea that this entire track is kind of like a long diary entry with repeated sentences each time with the ink pressed harder against the paper, but kind of repeating in the same string of madness. In this case, that those crash cymbals, the percussion that comes in, I feel like they were serving a much better purpose in this song than what they've done previously in this album. Instead of being just timekeeping, it's they're actually supporting the other instruments. They're supporting the vocal work a lot more than what we've gotten so far. That's great. I'm enjoying this. They're not so forefront. Here's the tone. Here's a thumping. You're going to follow the thumping along so you know what time it is in the song. Well, also, it's very typical for Marilyn Manson in the past to either take the forefront with a grinding guitar or a very heavy, steady rhythm. Neither which really happened here. He lets the whole song really breathe. He The backing rhythm fills out the song while the guitar work and the soundscape and the keyboard really work in tandem. In fact, the guitar is faint. There's not 
as much. It's more keyboard that's creating this interesting melody. The whining of that guitar, even this is the first time that I'm really enjoying the screeching, that I really am, am, am holding on to it because it's not so heavily in the ear. It's, it's actually being a supporting character or maybe an accent upon what's being said. And for the first time I heard these words, I actually enjoyed them a lot more than the repetition that we got later on. And that's my big detractor of this song. The chorus, oh God, is this long. It takes forever to get through it, especially the closing chorus. Ah, but it, well, the chorus itself and also the verse leading up to that, or if you want to call it maybe a pre-chorus, this had one of my favorite things about the song. I started off saying that his vocals were a little bland. They served to take me out of it, and that's only for the first verse. Your paper doll, I fold you how I want. You're not my noose. I tied this knot. If this won't be our fingers locked together, this is total war, method not objective. All right, so you kind of get this strand of, of, of again, internal madness, the diary entry as, as you... As, as I interpret it, and they do get more intense as we go. Uh, the ink is getting a little bit heavier. By the time we get to this pre-chorus, cannot say I'm breaking the rules if I can glue them back together. Cannot say I'm breaking the rules if I can glue them back together. And he keeps on going with this just three times, but by the third time, it really takes off. So here, for the first time, for me, for the first time since the first track, his vocals have raised up again. They're hitting more heights. And that occurs in the third instance. Cannot say I'm breaking the rules if I can glue them back together. And he holds that, again, as you described, Matt, kind of like this this dripping quality to them. But higher, not, not in his usual register. And there's even like a slight slide there. You feel like he's not just quite hitting the note. Well, surprise, surprise, okay, Marilyn Manson's not quite on pitch. It works here. It really works well. And, I mean... Every single time he returns to that, and the chorus is another instance where he doesn't do it quite in the same way, not as much as I enjoyed that one line, for instance, but it was my favorite part here. Even though the chorus ha is, is fairly stable and it does feel like it drags on, it's because he's repeating the same lyrics a lot, but still kind of in the similar intensity, as he said, when if I can glue them back together. Here the lines are, scars in my fingers, bruises on my neck, and every single time he ends off that, that sort of neck, he kind of drips that out. Crashes my crash in my trains, warship my wreck, holding that out, and then a repeat of that over, over and over, over, over and over and, and over. over again. And I admit this by is, that point, but it's not even the first time we get that chorus. The second time when it comes back in, when he ends the song on that pre-chorus, when he brings in that chorus, it's long and it's it becomes boring. It really does become boring because we get a what almost a solid minute of that chorus. I don't want it. It was, yeah, God. Yeah, it considering just, my favorite part it, was the pre-chorus, and I and see it as a pre-chorus. Again, I, I, th I think the... Um I think the distinctions, because of the slow pace, of the distinctions between these segments, between the opening verse and the pre-chorus and the chorus, are, are fairly subtle. Again, they're just like little more intensified versions, but then they do retreat at the very end. The final pre-chorus, Cannot Say I'm Breaking the Rules, I believe was the instance in which uh, the sort of higher vocals step in um, and, and this sounds almost like it's not even him, either that or he's doubling himself in, in, uh, <laughs> I had an interesting comparison here. It almost kind of sounded like the chorus work that would be done in the middle of an Eminem mix. Like for Eminem, you know, he has his, his rap verses, and then there's always these very melodic, heavily melodic choruses in Eminem's music. And it, 
it kind of struck me like that at the end, as if he just kind of retreated, because obviously you can't blot the ink on paper as, as heavier and heavier and heavier, you'll break the paper. So, of course, he, at the very end here, he does die out. And then the track as a whole kind of fades out, which, well, as we've discussed fades out, fade outs before, I do think it was um, probably a better instance here, just because the, the track as a whole kind of did strike me as this, as this ongoing cycle. Well, also the fade so it, out. Uh, the fade out, of course, would you know accentuate that cycle if you feel like you're just taking a snapshot of something that could occur at any time in your life. Well, also musically, it did become begin to fall apart, almost as if it was descending into madness. So yeah. a fade out did make sense. Also, it's funny this madness that we're that you keep talking about in the writing of a with a pen over and over again. It's funny because the setting I got when talking about madness in spaceships was actually space madness, the Ren and Stimpy episode. <laughs> And this idea of people being locked in a room with a button that they can't touch, but there's no one there, and they want to touch it, and then they just go insane until they press it, and, you know, they give up. No, that wasn't the Ren and Stimpy. That was a whole season on Lost. The, the, the thing that I really did get a strong sense of, though, speaking of what Steve was talking about, though, was setting. The, the, the idea of comparing it to Space Madness, which is one of my favorite Ren and Stimpy episodes, is they're floating in space in this existence where they can't escape and they're doomed to repeat it until they press the button and blow themselves up. It does have a strong setting and I think it speaks to what Steve was saying with that pre-chorus and with the, the way that the song does slowly build. I just also agree with you guys that by the end, it did get repetitive vocally and then it kind of falls apart in that descent to madness way, as I mentioned. I think honestly, it's just a matter of it being long. It's yeah. not, I don't, like, honestly, I think there's, there's, there's instances here where I really appreciate the repetition. I think it fits the track as a whole. I think it just goes on for a very, very long time. I think it has a good overall arc, though. Yeah, that, that's something I, I'm really going to credit this track for. It definitely has the strongest track arc on the album, yeah. for sure. And, frankly, if you're going mad, well, it probably feels like an eternity. So, you know, again, artistic justification. <laughs> track six, Slave Only Dreams to Be King. Um, well, this begins with a speech, a little, a little thing pulled from, uh, I believe it was a poet, uh, English poet, late 19th century figure. But it was presented as more of a preaching rendition, and there yes. were some slight actual word changes in the sound bit itself. The human wheel, that force unseen, that offspring of a deathless soul, can hew away to any goal the walls of granite intervene. Be not in patient delay. But wait as one who understands. When spirit rises and demands, the gods are ready to obey. Um, interesting poetry. I actually rather like that. As to how you see it relating as a whole to, um, to Slave Only Dreams to Be King, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think actually that's pulled from a different poem, although it escapes me at the moment. Um, anyway, we go directly into the verse from there. That's kind of very much like what we got, again, back on... Uh, D'Angelo and the Vanguard's Black Messiah, we had another track that begins with, and it's kind of a common thing these days, ah, oh, begin with the speech, that way you get some kind of connectivity here. Um, but I, I certainly enjoy the poetry there more than I got in the first verse, which is, take my money like an ugly bee, covered in my money, too dumb to see, my, fib my Fibonacci blinded by your jealousy, I'm happy to pull my veins out and braid a rope, I, I don't need hope to know that you die slow. I'm happy to pull my veins out and braid a rope. I don't need hope to know that you die slow. I just well, that's, The, the that's, poetry has taken a little bit of a decline, and I think that's one thing that no, happens man, when that's you... that's deep. 
That's deep. Is it though? No. Because <laughs> my Fibonacci blinded by your jealousy. What is he talking about? Fibonacci has, I don't know where he's getting a, the, these sort of metaphors. Covered in my money, it's too dumb really to awful. see. What? The, where? Where's he drawing this stuff from? And my favorite part, the chorus. And then we met our brand new parents, but they didn't know it yet. So we chanted, wed, wed, wed. But they didn't know they were dead. Didn't know they were dead. What the hell's going on here? That's the, the, got no sense. This song in structure, in music, in lyrics, in all kind of construction reminds me of a White Zombie or Rob Zombie song. But the thing is, it doesn't remind me of modern Rob Zombie. It reminds me of White Zombie slash Rob Zombie from that time period, that the heyday that he existed in, the 90s. And it's just so odd to me to emulate that like to emulate your own sound from the past, I makes sense to me as an artist. But to emulate someone else from, I mean, I guess it's no different than paying homage to your heroes or your peers. But it's just so odd for Marilyn to do that. He always had a distinct voice from a lot of the other new metal and heavy rock guys, and I don't know why he's reaching back to that. And speaking of his voice, this is one where I'm just gonna flat out say I found it really grating, just distracting at points because it was being I agree. doubled with the screechy guitar that he's been loving so far on this album, it's it made it, like, at points, just, ah, oh, bleh. Truly bleh. Almost unbearable. How do you spell that? B-L-E-H with a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> We're going to have an ellipsis here. No exclamation point. I'm not that evocative about it. It's just, oh, man, grating in my ears. I... I really did not enjoy I was, I'll point it out I did not enjoy this one on headphones it was a little bit too close for me it it was better as ambient stereo music I don't know I, it wasn't as grating to me but I definitely agree that there's a decline here a distinct and steep decline from a Worship My Wreck again it's a combination of several things I mean we haven't even really touched the music here frankly because there's not much to discuss well no 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 I touched the music I, I compared it to a thing you gotta oh, remember yay. the bass and the drums <laughs> the percussion and the bass that they were fighting like two big drunk guys just swinging at one another not really connecting and basically doing the same pattern over and over and over again, but you felt like they were in competition instead of in unison, actually trying to support other stuff. It's also just a little bit similar to what we've had. It's another sort of swing style in a, in a, in a different pattern. The heavy bass, screeching guitar, and your rhythm is sort of like this one, two, and, and four, and one, two. I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of the rocking back and forth, and I say and in place where I really should be saying let, because again, it's that sort of triplet feel, one, two, let. Lit four, lit one. I mean, it's it's that nonstop. I I think it's actually a good groove. The problem is, I'm 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 kind of used to this kind of swing thing at this point. Every track has to have its own little strut, and I just I'm not feeling it. I mean, the more and more, the the sort of punch and coarseness of it kind of lose its power when you just sort of repeat it all the time. And the same goes for the vocals. I mean, in this case, the vocals. Yeah, I'm entirely with John. When you look at these. Two lines especially, and that's right at the beginning, that um, covered in my money, too dumb to see, and he holds that out, screeching, really like like intentionally trying to, to perturb you. Same again with the next line, my Fibonacci blinded by your jealousy, yeah, and I just want to like turn it off at that point. I'm, I, I again have stated at the outro that the voice has uses, it has applications. 
this is just not one of them. It doesn't it's, feel like it's supported or supporting anything around it because it's the same strut here. It's 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 clearly. I mean, he's clearly trying to make some kind of statement about himself with respect to his surroundings. It's, so there's it's that drama. It's it's melodrama. Yes, it's that. It's just I find melodramatic. it. I find his voice, especially in this instance, and this is. I mean, this is Tropesville. It's melodramatic from the musical perspective, at the least. Pro- the problem with also with him is that this melodrama, when it was in the earlier albums, it was just drama. It wasn't melodrama. And I think that's the problem that we're hitting here, is he had more meaningful lyrics on the earlier albums because he was making a statement most of the time. And there's not there's not a lot of statements here that are pretty clear, and that's a problem. Also, he did do more interesting things with his voice. Here, he's falling into these traps that we've talked about. And I just, I don't expect rocket science from a non-rocket scientist, but I expect some of the inf- innovation I know he's capable of and there's none of it here. There was a little bit, there was, and there was so much of it in the last track. Even if it wasn't su- innovation in the realm of the vast universe of music, it was still a little bit innovative for him. He did more with his soundscapes and he, he expanded a little more and there was no Frankly, there. it was enjoyable in the previous track. Just yeah. flat out enjoyment. Here, it's stagnation. And we stagnate more as we move forward to track seven, The Devil Beneath My Feet. Okay, I had a huge no. I'm going first. Screw you. This is me. I was raising my hand to interject, and I still got to interject. This this is Marilyn Manson doing a shitty 60s or 70s rock band. I don't I don't understand why. Why? I like I get that he wants to pay homage, I'm guessing, to his roots, and that's fine, but it just didn't make any sense here. It just it seemed so pointless well first of all this is the the first instance of a track that does not utilize that kind of that kind of strut feel at least i didn't hear it here instead it's just plain eighth notes which to be simple percussion is simple i mean yes exactly it's it's just very basic i i actually it noted it, it was interesting to me just because it was different i mean i already kind of stated the at this time, I'm sort of tired of the strut here. What's well, like here's something different. Unfortunately, it's a real retreat to something that yeah, maybe '60s rock band. I also hear a lot of modern indie bands do it. When um, you but when you can go into and do in fact use the clap, 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 clap method of percussion within a song in this genre, you're reaching. You're really reaching in this style of music to try to integrate that into a, a solid piece. That is not the worst part. The worst part for me, because it's one of my favorite instruments, and it will be probably my favorite sound, is the, the bass. bass. I looked at Steve and I went, what is this called? And he told me, 5-4-1. And I went, okay, that I don't like. This <laughs> is... It's 5 four, one if you see it in that, but then later, I, if I see it in another chord, then it could be one seven four. Either way, it, it's, it's a really, really plain baseline because of the fact that it repeats uh, that sort of over and over again. I mean, it's, it's five... Five 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 four four four. I mean, it's 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 tiresome because it's in a style that we're. I guess it, it's gritty, but it's that's only gritty because it's in a style that we're used to by now. So therefore, that doesn't hit you hard at track seven on the album. Um, I really strained to find something musically that I uh, that I was like attracted to in this track, except for one part later. I'll get to that. Yeah, uh, and it's just I don't know. I like. I expect 
him to be edgy, even if the edginess is melodramatic, I still expect it somewhere. The edginess here was not being edgy. I don't know. It just it. I was so conflicted well, with this track. I feel that way for another reason, and that's because of theme. Uh, let me just dip over to lyrics for a second here, because this is one of those instances where I'm not really like even detecting any other levels. A lot of times he has this tendency to, as we've stated, sort of cloud his his metaphors really, really deep. So like, what the hell are you talking about? Come on, you know, be a little more on the nose or throw your audience a bone. It's not that we're all idiots, but it's that sometimes you're really evading us. Um, but in this particular case, it's very it's very plain and obvious what he's what he's saying. Don't you want your God and his higher power? Want power to get higher? And I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed. When you look up, what will you see? Don't need a motherfucker looking down on me, motherfucker looking down on me. Least I know wherever I go, I got the devil beneath my feet. Least I know wherever I go, I got the devil beneath my feet. Beneath my feet. But this it's, is no, no, just... No. It's followed up by... Don't bring your black heart to bed. When I wake, you best be gone. Oh, you're right. And then or there, you, he kind of goes you'd back better into be dead. the thing. What's, that, that's the whole thing. That first part, obviously, attacking religion. It's kind of hard and, not to see that. Plain and simple. And that's, and, that, and that's the opposite. That's so on the nose that it's just like, okay, great. Now you're just going to kind of like be vindictive against anybody who might have a little a dose of faith. So it's like that angry atheist, which is like, all right, fine. You can have opinions. But this is really just like heavy-handed it's not making any points it's just saying well you know i don't need that but it gets even worse because then after these lyrical moments whatever you want to call them we get to an interlude after the verse chorus it's no no it's not an interlude what the hell is it it is a section it's not an interlude because it does still speak to what the melody was doing in the previous part of the song that's the whole no no interlude would be a separate part this is a cool little light airy piece that it's a wtf moment why is this here i'm not done describing it because it's like it's like a ray of sunshine in the middle of a cloudy day i guess you'll say that this made me scratch my head because it really was yeah it was a what What, why i don't know what's going on here it doesn't make any sense here's the problem what happens beforehand and what happens after are completely same to one another the little piece in between it is nodding towards the song but it is abrupt in the previous tracks we've mentioned once or twice that he introduces like percussion or guitar riff abruptly here he decreases everything abruptly and then reintroduces it abruptly i don't like this because okay you want to go for something emotionally that does jar a person that makes a person feel something because of how quickly it comes on of that nature fine problem is we're not getting any emotions not heavily before during or after this section for all intents and purposes it is useless except to show that manson can do something real pretty that's it yeah and in the in in context i saw it as as rather pointless it's a shame because i rather enjoyed it as we all did but i mean after that, it's right back to the chorus or the verse. I don't know. They're indiscernible at this point. This is the kind of like they just drone on. Well, of course, we know what the choruses are. That's don't bring your black heart to bed when I uh, when I wake up. You best be gone or you'd better be dead. I mean, that's the, that's clearly the chorus. But it's like the music is so sort of static at this point that it, it, it might as well just be one continuous section um, apart from that little nugget of gold. But 
I don't know. As a whole here, if you did want to reach deep into these lyrics and try to pull something out, I, I, cause I'm looking at the chorus here and I want to think like, well, is that some kind of answer, some sort of satirical answer to a character that the verse is? Because, you know, that has that machismo about well, it. No, I, referred it to, be... I referred to it before as the angry atheist, kind of just sort of stepping on the toes of everything else. Well, if I'm not going to go for God, then I'm going to go for the devil. You know, at least I got the devil beneath my feet to kind of, well, so atheist I'm going to turn satanic. And oh, that, that's a trope that's just, that needs to die because it's it serves absolutely no purpose, especially even if you have a point to make as an atheist. But then it pushes further into that. Don't bring your black heart to bed. When I wake up, you best be gone or you'd better be dead. And a part of me almost wants to think that's like an answer to the character of the verse saying it's like, well, if you bring that to bed, it, it brings to mind that um that old like there's no atheist in foxholes or for instance the old prayer you know uh i pray the lord my soul to keep as i lay my head to sleep i pray the lord my soul to keep and if i die before i wake i pray the lord my soul to take there you go that's the one famously also in metallica's enter Sandman, which was used very artistically i did enjoy it yes which is similar to the idea of the no atheist in foxholes because you know. it's like well you could just have an aneurysm in the middle of your sleep, and it's just like almost, you know, keep mindful of that. That's almost the way I want to construe this, and then all of a sudden the song takes on a broader, more even-handed level, being like, well, you have the the person who's all talk in the verse, and then the answer to that. And I kind of like that, except for the fact that he's doing, if you take it face value, then he's doing in the verse a very, very plain thing. He's no metaphors. He's just a guy making a statement, and it's cold, and, and it doesn't really provide much for me in the way of artistic value. But he's doing in the second verse what he's, excuse me, he's doing in the chorus what he's been doing throughout the entire album, which is incorporating these these very abstract metaphors that, though they make may make you think, they're a little bit too much in his head sometimes, such that I just threw that... that out of my ass and i i like it but i don't think everyone's gonna pull that and i think very few people are gonna pull no, that i have a theory the song is all spoken from one point of view god or the higher power which at times gets equated with an oppressive being could be the significant other he's telling not to come to bed because he would rather leave and take his devil with him than be forced to remain subjugated to this person that believes that they are a higher power on top of him. That's my pulled-out-of-the-ass take on this song. I sure. think that you're both spending way more time thinking on this track than the person who wrote it did. Well, then you know what? No, okay, rant side, because you, you prompted this one. You know what? If we have to start really thinking about this song and other songs on this album to really find meaning, and that's the only thing we're really trying to harp on, like looking into the depth, that's a that's probably as negative a thing I could think of. Well, because we're well, searching for things. We're, we're literally searching for things. There's the fine line to that, and I think, I think previous episodes of doing this would tell you that. Very often, I do believe you should take something, you know, and, and, and sit with it for a while. I, I'm not impugning research. That's a whole reason we do this. Yeah, but, but there that's is, not what this is. There's a certain well, time you have to just pack up and move on. There is a certain time you have to pack up and move on, and that's why I always go back to music at the end. I listen to music at the end of the day so much that as interesting as a notion that I, I may have just raised uh, without knowing whether that's indeed the notion, the music doesn't make me feel that in nope. any respect. The music is just... Music doesn't make me feel anything at all. 
in this track. Yeah. Well, if you want to feel really weird, we do have the next track, Birds of Hell Awaiting. Okay. So here we get another soundscape intro, which is nice. It's an, it's, it's it's a saunter with weird little tidbits. And the tr- and That's the... more of the chorus. The yeah. intro is a lot more hellish, I think, especially with Birds of Hell Awaiting, okay? So I kind of already was visualizing hell going in here, and it kind of fills that out. You get a lot of, yeah, screeches, sounds kind of emo at times, but also very southern rock. It seems like that attitude kind of just... Uh, breached into that. Maybe because, again, we're bringing back the swing thing. It's the strut again this time. One, lit two, lit three, lit four. Lit... And this time with much more heavier uh, heavier bass lines. So that, I think that's why I sort of felt that, that Southern Rock thing. Because normally that wouldn't, that wouldn't change up. Southern Rock would not change up in the ways that he's been doing up until now. But this time, I mean, that's as regular as it gets. That's plain swing. Plain one, lit two, lit three, lit four, lit. There's no variation there, but still, it's not like there's much variation from here from earlier instances. It's just different little, you know, uh, ways of pursuing that same style, and it's always with the same pattern. It's always with the bass and the drums. Um, the guitar riff steps in, and it's kind of nice. Again, kind of fills out that sort of ominous, hellish. Uh, but all feeling. of a sudden, it's the... paralleling. It's not doing anything besides no, that. No, it had a, it had a distinct riff. With it, I mean, of course, yes, it's beholden to the measure, but it's not. Um, I didn't think it was was vacant. I thought it actually did sound a little bit like that sort of pr- Peter Frampton vocalizer, you know, uh, that that effect that he tends to use through his guitar, like he yeah. speaks, and then it kind of like grounds. It's like a combination of a vocal and yeah, a guitar. Richie Sambor and Bon Jovi does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. and I, I felt like that's kind of what this was going for. So it's a different sound for the album, which I'm always welcoming at this point. And yeah, then we but... go into the chorus, and as we sing, this is your death, this is your death, this is your death's desire. It is strangely more jaunty. John described that as a saunter, and I think it's very apt, but it's like that's a strange transition. Especially when well, talking no... about death. Yeah. Well, also because it seems like he's trying to create a the- theatricality in this song using the chorus in that way that just doesn't exist. It falls short. There's more theatricality in the whole of Worship My Wreck than there is anywhere in this chorus by itself. The whole song can be summed up with the opening lines, Birds of Hella waiting with the wings on fire. Insane old phoenix baby, if your death desire. Okay, uh, this is not profound. This is a garble of words. Well, this is like what we were looking at when we were looking at uh, Judas Priest. Again, episode 105, very often they were just incorporating um, names of mythology... I think just for the sake of it, a lot of times I don't really see the point in doing that. I think it, it pushes your music away from the listener. Granted, if you have a bent for that kind of mythology, then then sure. Sure, maybe you'll see something, but even then, I think you're going to start to really detect when certain instances are just tired, especially when you can't even see why it's invoked, and I constantly am just straining to figure that out. The big issue I got here is... That garble of words, because frankly, phoenixes, as far as my knowledge, and I'm pretty knowledgeable on phoenixes as far as a layman, have no connotation. Phoenixes. (laughs) Have no connotation or relationship with hell. They were actually seen as fairly good creatures. Uh, Incredibly good creatures. Yeah, we're going to push Harry Potter to the side for now, even though they were like, hey, no, what's wrong with Fox? Well, that's, that's a different tangent. Phoenixes in general were good luck omens, were amazing creatures, were the personifications of not death, but life and death in the cycle. And rebirth, yeah. Where hell comes in, I don't know. The, the 
just the inflection of his voice in this song, though, is trying to make this so full of drama and bravado and machismo and all the other words we've been using so far, but it falls so flat on his face. Is, it's it's the opposite of profound. There, I don't know what that is. There is no the, there's no depth in this song. None. None. It's uninspired. It's boring. It it has gaping holes theatrically. I mean, at this point, I I know. See, look, I always shy away from that kind of analysis. I just think it's 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 a case of being too much in the artist's head. There's a meaning behind this. It's 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 clearly there. I don't believe people just write this stuff for the sake of writing. Except maybe that Judas Priest album. I'm sure they were just following um following their pattern, and they knew it would would get their their audience. Um, I don't know if I really be, like buy that Marilyn Manson is that type of figure. I just, I just, he's not, he's not letting us in here. And the music, again, which is what I always go back to at the end, really fails at that. It's just, it, it, it pushes itself away from that opening sound, which again is always intriguing. His intros in general have been intriguing. He very rarely shuffles it up. And then sometimes there's even repetitions within that. Okay, well here it's a little bit more hellish. I strike... Uh, I described earlier it's as being somewhat more horror-bound. I mean, he tries to set these backdrops that are threatening in some way. Yeah, but but ma- I, I, I think that when you do it seven tracks in a row, you just you don't accomplish any kind of threatening vibe anymore because your, your, your listener now knows. They know your shtick. Even if they don't know your, your uh, 20, 30-year discography, they know the album by now for sure. It's just I think it, it has just become that shtick. It's become shticky and 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 <laughs> so shticky we're stuck. Uh, and I just I, I, I'll I give you that. That's, okay, yeah, that's, that's a point. I, I just I can't I can't. All right, let's move on to track nine. Cupid carries a gun. Um, John, remember when you said before that the metaphors really sucked? You were only wrong because these are the worst metaphors on the record. These the metaphors are terrible. The lyrics are awful. The music is predictable. I've got nothing. But to allow say me about to start this track. with this. Just may I go? Do it. One, two, lit three, four. One, two, lit three, four. Sounds familiar. Sounds a little familiar, does it? I can't. Like, I'm just so done at this point. We're strutting. Like, I... I Again. I, look, I, I will not deny that his earlier work did have repetitive moments or did seem similar in moments, but there was something different, at least, whether the vo- there was a vocal change-up or a lyrical or catchy lyric or a message or it was social, or the video was really intricate or intriguing. I'll give you one thing. The acoustic guitar in the very beginning here provides a little bit of edge. There it's was an acoustic guitar? Yes. Yeah, there was. It was a very, a, a very twangy, light, very, very faint, twangy. very faint twang, oh, le- yeah. left I ear. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots of emphasis in the five, but alternating between that and the flat five, yet the accent is in the five. That was a really, really nice touch for the opening, and again, just because it's sonic diversity. I really don't think we've had an instance of any kind of acoustic on this album before, so this is something new, but we have about one more track to give us something new. The this, riff itself this... is also a little bit interesting, just going back and forth between the one and the flat three, so it's like, alright, hammering home minor, but it's, I mean... It's, it's as steady as a sine wave, though. You could plot courses by this. You know when it's going to rise and fall and rise yeah. and fall. And, and then the, in, the intrigue in the beginning, using that acoustic guitar, it leaves. It, it departs. It's gone. Completely and gone. If, if it's there, it's, it's, it's very benign for the remainder of the track. I don't think it's even there anymore. Uh, it might have been, but it, yeah, it's not really what you're focused on, but it's hard to really find other things to focus on, granted. So, uh, overall, I, I just sensed this track was moving in very predictable directions. The chord progressions were almost, I would 
almost sense that they were repeated chord progressions from earlier on the album. Now, granted, I didn't sit at the piano with this, as, as listeners know, I very often do that to really immerse myself into the into the music. I don't have perfect pitch, but I like to sit down with my work. I like to really break it down. But in this case, I wasn't really inspired to. I did it earlier on the album, and then at a certain point, I'm just like, there's nothing here that's really leaping out to me from a musical perspective, so that leaves me with the uh, the, the remaining aspects, which is, well, it's attitude. Is that still getting me anymore? That okay. kind of left. Um, his voice, is that still getting me anymore? That kind of left, or rather stayed static. He's just not shocking me anymore. Nope. John? Lyrics? Uh, frankly, I'd rather not. This ha- is, this, there's, no, this, this doesn't eat. I will. No. Pound me the witch drums, the witch drums. Pound me the witch drums. Pound me the witch drums, the witch drums. Better pray for hell, not hallelujah. Again, invoking all this, you know, theological... I'm a coat of fists, dead and hardened spiders like two mangled crowns, or the widest of the meanest coiled snakes. Um, I want to go into that one. Meanest coiled snakes. What's a coat of fists? Is that literally a coat made of fists? That would be an amazing coat. The most on-the-nose way of saying you mean business. Yeah. And then he he buries (laughs) it in the ground. He goes as deep as you possibly can with that metaphor. Frankly, it's amazing. He's able to make me understand that the dead hands, uh, the dead and hardened spiders are his hands, that that they're two mangled crowns. I don't I don't really get the the whitest of the meanest coiled snakes. I that that I don't get. I guess sort of like with like kung fu, they're like cobra striking his opponents. Or, or, or some other stereotypical idea of old school kung fu movies or something like that. Maybe that's where he's going. Sure. Yeah, that's a design of sure right there. <laughs> there is one little bit, one slight metaphor that's, that's really good at the same time of how crude it is. Lives wide open like a whore painted in spit from the earth between her thighs. That is... A really good metaphor. No, you always get little it's, doses within his work. You're always just like, ooh, that's good writing. Where does that fit in context? Yeah, that's even everything leading up to it, everything, because it has nothing to do with the folks saying that he looks like death. It has it has nothing to do of the lived-in eyes, of the lived-in hotel eyes he has. It's, it's odd. Everything about this is really odd lyrically because nothing just is connecting to anything else well first of all you did leave out the first two lines and that was folks folks said i look like death lived in the hotel of my eyes lives wide open like a whore or see that's that's interesting like lives wide open like a whore or lives wide open like a whore i don't remember the way he actually said that um because actually it could be either when you actually read it um but yet it's kind of like placing yourself Somewhat in the distance, that person who's here but not really here. I like this imagery. It's it's it really is kind of that 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 hip hop deal where you come to the table and present who you are to the public. The the very much well, this is my cred. You know, it's it sometimes comes across to me like that, and then other times this comes across to me like like a Marilyn Manson does a love song. Cupid carries a gun, but. <laughs> His idea of a love song is obviously going to be a little bit more embittered. And again, 
You have a lot of content. You have a lot of lyrics in this track. Keep your halos tight. I'm your guard or your guardian. Keep your halo tight. One hand on the trigger, the other hand in mine. There's like this duality of, of, of trust on one side, but then also fear on the other. You know, presenting what he what he is and what others should fear him as, but at the same time also, you know, well, you can trust me for that reason. I, I just don't know. I don't, I don't... You don't know. This is exhausting. Moving on. Track 10. Odds of even. Ah, another clever play on words. I'm done. Okay. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> this song is an acid rock-ish song. He's going back to Floydian. what he was trying... No. It was Floydian. Very, very Pink Floyd. It was, it, it's very much going back to what sort of he was doing in The Devil Beneath My Feet. He's reaching for another genre that's not really his typically. I don't know. This reminds me of when um, Rob Zombie tried to do classic rock. Bad. Bad. No, no. In this case, I, my first thought was, this is cool. It took me a little, re- little while to realize, no, not, not really, not quite cool, but it's a lot more interesting than what we've gotten so far on this As album. As I said before, sonic diversity is always kind of good, at least it's for the album, but this is the tail end here. I mean, this is just like, well... This one, it's got some punctuated guitar that we haven't seen. It's, it's a got, waltzy kind of song. It's not a waltzy kind of song. It's a waltz. It's a waltz of the damned, like only Marilyn Manson can do. Oh, a damned waltz. Yeah, but it's not even that dark either. And that, like, I don't know. I just, at this point, I no, feel like this no, song no, doesn't no. really get interesting until the second half, I, and by then yes, I'm Yes, I had bored. that sensation. Um, first of all, it's a very slow-going track. Slow rhythm, uh... Every drawl is just sort of dripping and overexposed, um, which is how I don't define a lot of the album. But this, in this case, it was a little bit more, um, I think, just overall pleasing because it was in a different tone. Also, we had very strange interludes here, like this plain, like, pizzicato uh, minor arpeggio. Right in the home key, right in B minor, it just starts going downward. B, F sharp, D, B. And I, I mean, that's an odd little quirk. I mean, I have to define that as a quirk. It's a very, it's a very odd thing to do, especially within the context of this. You know, just to incorporate that that texture of a, of a pizzicato as opposed to the normal like drawls and and drips that we tended to get. Um, also, toward the end, it almost struck me that it uh, modulated at a certain point. I think we went up a fourth. Um, not positive about that, but much. It definitely felt a lot darker in the tail stretch. Like it entered this dark cavernous or, or sort of gates of hell or something. This is around like 4 minutes, 30 seconds. And then for the tail end up there to like 6 minutes, 5 seconds. Is that about how long it is? Maybe yeah. 10 seconds. Um, it just kind of stays there. You get a little bit of solo, I think, bridging the two sections. Or maybe over the latter half. And then uh, at the very tail end, you just close out with souls presumably being tortured in the distance. Like you do. Like you do. It, it is as a waltz. They, as they do. And if you're going to do a waltz, it should be of the damned. But another damnable waltz in any way, shape, or form is, is frankly, a trope unto itself. Let's read out the lyrics to put a cap on this. Stood in the face of grim death, screaming, Monsters, bring me to deckness. My dagger and swagger are useless in the face of the mirror when the mirror is made of my face. I like that. Chorus. This is the house of death. Even angels die in the arms of demons. This wait, is wait. the house of death. Even angels die in the arms of demons. It's not just demons. It's demons. That's right. He drags that up. And Another then draw. it's demons. Like, it's so important to be inflective when you're doing this song. And finally, hide your heart in your gut. But for what? 
when they're waiting to pull you apart like a scarecrow on death row, so now all of your secrets are shown. No one is exempt from the odds of even. Okay. Yay. Death awaits. Yeah. That's what I extrapolate from this. Sure. Damnations await. I just, I don't know. Like, the lyrics when read aloud by Steve sound better than they did in the song. Well, that's because the. That's because my voice is pretty awesome. Yeah, Steve's pretty good. I wouldn't go that far. He has probably better. He has a decent NPR voice. Yeah, there we go. I'm okay with that. It's exactly where I want to be. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just compared the fact that Steve has an NPR voice and saying it's better than how Marilyn Manson sung it on the song, and that is. That, I think, might be the most appropriate way for me to start my wrap-up, unless somebody has a way to... That is an interesting thing, food for thought. Mm. Nope, nope, nobody, nothing else to add? All right. Well, superficial. That's this album to a T. Nothing here comes across as truly earnest. They come across as, well, gimmicky, with one little exception. Worship My Wreck, even though I did complain it, it takes a long time to really go through the motions, it was a lot funner than pretty much everything else we got on the album. And it did something that nothing else really did on the album. Build. It went somewhere. And when it rebuilt, when it actually changed up the instrumentation, it didn't destroy it. It didn't just go, bam, with a big snare drum or something like that and go into a heavy-handed piece. No, it felt like it was naturally progressing, and that's a great thing for a really long song. All the songs here really did feel their length, and since most of them were over four minutes, like, that's another problem I got going on here. It's not something we even really harped on, but these things drag every song, and at the end, by the time I'm getting to it, it's dragging for me. A lot is going on, but nothing is really being said. It's superficial. He's painting a canvas, but it's the same exact picture he's been doing for a very long time. Maybe instead of using black and white, he's using a bunch of dark grays and a bunch of very, very light grays. But it's that same sort of dark, brooding emo kid we got back in the early 90s. There's nothing going on here that I really see him expanding upon. In fact, it seems like he's taken a bit of a step back, relying on some really old ideas of swing and waltzes that honestly weren't relevant back in the early 90s for the most part. Yeah, when you're coupling that with sort of that deathy feel, it's different, but it's no longer different. Hasn't been different since 95, since 2000. I'm even giving him the benefit of a doubt there, but come on. I know he's capable of a lot more. Because while I'm not a huge Marilyn Manson fan, there's a bunch of songs I know by him that you just have to know by him that are attitude-driven, that really do seem to have meaning. But here, it's superficial. 2.5. It's not even an average song. It really is a step back from, so... Album. Uh, album, excuse me. 2.5. It's nothing more than just music. Um, superficial, gimmicky, gonna ditto John there, and and much of what he said. I do strain to see why Rolling Stone, you know, was so, uh, so elated by this album. You know, return to form, return to form. Okay, well, maybe I don't know as much of uh, Manson's discography to really make that claim, um, or understand that claim. 
But I do and can, and I'll get to that. You, you may get to that. Um, I, again, tried not to invoke too much of that, like with uh, last week's review in the Decemberist, of course, since I was following a pretty long discography there. Not as long of a discography, but still, six albums, this is nine albums. Uh, I think that a lot of that reasoning behind why someone would really, like, you know, flock to this might be a, a overjoyed impression based on the first track. I think this has a very, very strong opener, and I found myself ready to expect greatness from this album based on the first track. Yes, we had our minor, our minor critiques, but, you know, I had minor critiques in, in last week's album uh, with with the December's first track. And, and you know, there was uphill moments from there, there were also downhill moments from there. It, in general, it comes down to don't judge a book by its cover. And and don't judge an album by its cover by its cover art. I actually haven't seen the cover art for this album yet. It's just um, a blurry picture. It's a bl- oh no, that's right. I have seen it. That's right. It's it's him sort of fading into the distance, which is like the pale emperor. The pale emperor. It's a very. It, it, it almost lets me see what this album is about just on, on based on those two things. But when you get really into it, there's a lot of there's a lot of buried imagery. I, I, I find the writing to be very subpar here with respect to the music, and I think that's my number one problem. The music itself, of course, John already fielded that. It, it is superficial and gimmicky. I think once it settles on its groove, it just stays there. Almost every track is like a retrograde or introverted uh, copy of itself after a certain point, barring the exceptions that we noted. Um, Killing Strangers, opening track, and then... Uh, and then, of course, track five, the um, uh, Worship My Wreck. They, they, they were interesting. They at least developed it in a different direction. We weren't sort of stuck in the confines of what the rest of this album is. And I really wanted there to be more. Again, I, I, I have a very different approach to, to my lyrics, especially in the, since we really started doing this uh, on the Crash Quartz podcast and taking lyrics seriously. I like sitting with lyrics and, and, and reaching in to, to, to dive through various layers. But I, I stick with this. I just don't think he's he's letting us in. He sticks us with an abstract metaphor, and maybe you'll get it right, maybe you'll get it wrong. But I don't believe that we should have to refer to interviews and internet interpretations to govern our opinions. The music itself should speak for it. In this case, it doesn't. I'm 100% with John 2.5. Okay. So here's the thing about Marilyn Manson. When Marilyn Manson started in the early to mid-90s, he had teeth. And what I mean by that is things... There were still horror stories in the news, but it was a different time. He was scary, and he was had an impact on, on society, and his the things he said, the things he did. I mean, back then he wore a bodysuit that had boobs on it, and that was a problem. Him creating this feminine figure for himself was controversy. That's not controversy now. The okay. reality is, when when the stuff on TV in present day is scarier than anything you can say or present, your character, your persona no longer has the same teeth it had. And I think that's the biggest problem with this record. I went back and listened to the entire discography of Marilyn Manson's work today. Amen to you. I went through all of it because I remembered a lot of it. And I scanned the albums that I hadn't heard. Eat Me, Eat Me Drink Me, The High End of Low, and Born Villain. His greatest hits, I think, still have strength. I like the singles. I really look fondly on the covers he's done. 
But beyond that, he's that. He's become a greatest hits band. I just, I don't think that he holds up the same way. And what supports that is, the, I like three songs on this record. I can take his greatest hits, lest we forget, add these three songs to it on a playlist, and I've got all I need from Marilyn Manson. I feel like, I, Steve, remember when you are talking about how you would assume his fans would have grown up? Mm-hmm. They did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the problem here. Even though Deep Six gave me a strong nostalgia and I really enjoyed it in that song, when song after song after song did it again and again, with not even the intricacies that Deep Six had, I was bored. It's why I stopped listening to Disturbed as well. I haven't heard their last two records because they sounded the same when I heard the singles. All the songs sounded the same. Godsmack I- too. Point of fact, Disturbed's last two albums were in fact the same. I have heard them. Uh, Godsmack's last two records. Also, the problem with a lot of new metal is you fall into the sameness, or you take the route that Rob Zombie did. You try and purposely put yourself out there and do something different, and you're panned for it, because then they're not happy with that sound that they expect. It's New metal is one of the toughest genres to keep alive. Most bands have evolved out of it, or change sound completely, you know. It's the same reason like a lot of all rock became pop rock because it's hard to stay with those specific genres because there's not a lot of intricacy to it. Once you grow from it, you're you're genre mashing and you're you're changing. And that's what Marilyn Manson needs to do to survive, but he definitely doesn't do it here. It's just a bummer because Steve is absolutely right. We we do know he's capable of more. We've all heard it. We know he's this figure. And he's capable of much more, but whether it's the best music you've ever heard doesn't matter. We know as an artist he's done some interesting and intriguing things, and he does it here too, but chooses to let it take a back seat to the samey stuff we've come to expect. I've, there's one band in my discography that I've accepted the same from, and that's ACDC because it's fucking ACDC. <laughs> that, not, is a, that is an excellent reason. If you're not ACDC, you can't pull that off. Aerosmith can't pull it off. Marilyn Manson can't pull it off. You need to grow and change. Um, I agree with both of you. I was thinking of rating it lower, but it truly is just a 2.5. Because it's not awful. It's mostly awful. It's, it's tasteless. It's It reminds me of Bare Naked Ladies. It, 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 there are a couple songs I like, but all in all, it falls flat. And, it, and it, it's below expectations. It's a 2.5 for me. I have one last metaphor. And the reason for this is because of the persona of Marilyn Manson. His music is like a horror series. It's like Saw or that, something like that. That's a simile you just did. Okay. It's a simile I'm going to use. Okay. His music's like a horror series. Like Saw. The first one is great. It's abrasive. It's a thriller. It's jump scare after jump scare. And it works. But when you get to the same iteration over and over and over again the same jump scares you're not going to feel them the same way it's impossible and this is the same jump scares yeah i just i wish i expected more from it it's honestly why i picked it because i figured it would either rub steve so the wrong way that he'd have so much to say about it or we would be eating our groaning that we did last week yeah but alas neither happened and that's kind of the most depressing thing i think as a whole But on to our topic for this week, because Marilyn Manson does hold an interesting point to, to, as an artist and as a band, 
And it's this idea that he actually never proclaimed himself Marilyn Manson in the way that J. Joe and Jameson always named the villains in the comics and kind of printed headlines. He was deemed Marilyn Manson after the band's many performances because it's a proper name and he was the front man and he was this personality. So they ascribe it to him. Similar thing happened to Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper never took on that persona at first. At first, it was the name of the band. That was the intention. But because he was larger than life, had these huge stage shows, and most importantly, it was a proper name, people were like, oh, that's Alice Cooper, that guy. The guy with the makeup and the snake on stage. That's Alice Cooper. And uh, remember that 70s show joke uh, when Jackie, the young, naive one, uh, is talking to Hyde or something like that, and she's like, oh, Leonard Skinner? Who's that? Yeah. You just don't get... Well, when you start using proper names for your band, and it's not an actual person, well, it's almost inevitable that it's going to happen, that the front man, the main singer, or something like that, is going to be just iconically associated with that name. It's, it's one and the other are going to just be linked. It's almost inevitable. The interesting thing about it, though, is both in those two specific cases that I cite, though, even though it wasn't the intention, both of them embrace it and then became it. Because the stage shows for both of those bands became way more theatrical once they became these characters, which I find interesting. Well, the reason is that a lot of times it's easier. It's easier for both the public and for the band because people identify singular images. It's hard to, like, you know, the Beatles are the only band that I know, I think, really know that people were like, okay, if you don't know every member of the Beatles, you don't know the Beatles. Yeah. Like, they were the con- the consolidated figures of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah. Um, and that, that other so guy. rarely happens, except in cases where you have, like, real uh, attached fandom, or so it's like, okay, people who were really into the monkeys probably knew the monkeys, but that's because they were following the same shtick. Um, well, and, like, I can name all the members of Metallica, but, you know... If you're really I can name in the all ilk... Them. I can name all the members of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Ha, 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 ha. That's good. Yeah, I like thank that. you. That was good. Um, and then, of course, uh, The Doors. Like, yeah. I'm a big keyboard fan, so I know The Doors' keyboardist, Rayman Zarek. I, I love his work. I think in many ways he defined <laughs> The Doors just as much. <laughs> I love that. I don't know which part you're doing, but... I, I could do so many different doors. That's fine. Okay, don't I'll take, do it. I'll take your word. Um, the off, jeez. I mean, of course, it needs not be mentioned. The the um, the entire solo in the middle of, of Come On Baby, Light My, my fire. fire. I yeah. mean, Damn that's in, that is, and I don't throw around this word lightly, that's an epic solo for keyboard. Well, that's an epic song, too. Yeah. And then it reels back in the end. As a whole, the whole thing lasts nine minutes. But, of course, we know what people know uh, the doors for, and that is Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison, oh, every poster you find is just, you know, that one with his shirt off, and he's just staring right at you, looking a little bit uh, mystical. I mean, he is this, this sort of, like, sex symbol for the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So, of course, you know, when you combine that with the fact that he's the songwriter and he brings the poetry to the table, one of the, the first uh, people really recognized a musician poet, a rock musician poet, and was hailed widely for it, then, of course, it's more to the band's advantage to hoist that up. Yeah, sure. Well, because, you know, that that provides image. If you go through the lines, not every uh, every single member of your band, even though in that case it was mostly only three people, they didn't even have a basis, because guess what? Keyboard is filled apart. <laughs> um, for the most part, the keyboardist is like, I feel like the emotional musical soul of the band. And yet at the same time, if you put him up there, 
in his face and the fact that he's normally sitting down for the duration, not going to have the same effect. He becomes a tertiary member. He becomes a tertiary member in the eyes of the public because people sitting down generally not like looked at very much. Same goes for drummers, often sitting down. You probably could even name drummers you really, really know and like and not quite picture their face. That's just a sad fact, but I, like that's marketing for you. That's not going to help you in the end if you don't have that front and center figure at the microphone in front of everyone else. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's like you, you were talking about the Beatles, you know, legendary band, it's, and you, it's hard to, to find someone who wouldn't know all of them. I can name a legendary band, actually my favorite rock band of all time, where most people can't name more than one member, and that's Queen. Everyone knows Freddie Mercury. I know Brian May, and a lot of people do, but name the drummer, either of you. Name the drummer from Queen. I can't. I know I can't. Can you? Unfortunately, no. Mm, maybe. Give me a few minutes on Wikipedia. Yeah. And this is my point, and I think it's interesting that that we've talked about idolatry in music before, but this is a little different. It's this idea of the helmsman and accepting it as opposed to fighting it. A lot of the reasons that there was often conflict in Van Halen was because larger-than-life characters like Sammy Hagar or or um, David Lee Roth would step forward and become the all-embodying soul, but then the band would get jealous that he was in the spotlight. And, well, and especially considering Eddie Van Halen at the time was one of the greatest guitarists. The, that's that's something I think uh, to speak of our the previous people we mentioned, Mercury, Morrison. I mean, it's not like these individuals are undeserving of being a prime focus because they did do some special things. Our examples are definitely guys that shaped music as yeah. we know it. Sure. But when you start talking about um, and I can't name any of them. Fallout Boy. Uh, Pete Wentz, the guitarist, is the only one I can name. And, and he's, he's not even the lead singer. Which is well, really weird. I did not know that because he was always the guy that was in front. I expected him to be the lead singer. But when I remember watching one video just on MTV or VH1 or whatever it was, randomly flipping through, saw it, I was like, oh, I like this song. I'm listening to it. And I'm looking at him, and there's a guy next to him singing. Yeah. It's not him. Yeah. That was a little bit of an oddball for me. Well, I do think you were bringing up something interesting, and that's the fact that, like, starting from maybe the 80s on, I do think it became very popular not to associate a frontman. The lack of frontman became very, very chic because uh, it, it sort of brings to mind this kind of band unity. No one is really above the rest, you know, and whether that's true in the real nitty-gritty of, like, who's doing the most, who's doing the songwriting. As a band, they just accept that, you know, we will we will accept the reservation and perhaps the the lack of... of um, a brashness that goes with it and just putting the one person on the poster and just approach it all at the same pace. And whether that, you know, hurts or helps your, your album sales is anyone's guess. But it's a sort of camaraderie tactic, which has its place too. Yeah, well, I can think of like, even though, of course, everyone now knows all of the Ramones at the time, it, like, Joe Ramone was the front man, but it was the Ramones. Like, you didn't really focus on any one of them. The band as a whole was this ubiquitous blob of punk rock music. They were yeah, and the excuse Ramones. me, I shouldn't have said, like, 80s on. I think it's occurred pretty, yeah. pretty gen uh, generally throughout. But there's always been that... that but I still think it's, like, a chic thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's definitely not as common. Because also because you're looking for a marketing point, And for, uh, very strong, charismatic frontmen are marketing points. Yeah. One uh, little oddity, and I'll bring up one of my favorite bands from high school, Blink-182. 
Mark, Tom, and Travis were frontmen. Yeah, it was they were it all. was almost the exact opposite. They really were each identifiably a persona, even though Travis never spoke. Well, and Travis was also the most talented member of the band. Yeah, he let his drums far. he let his drums speak for him, and I think they did a very good job. But Mark and Tom were just at odds at times, and sometimes in sync, larger than life characters. And they took that and they made those three characters into Blink One Eighty Two. It worked well for them because each of them was a central role. It made the band seem bigger than what it actually was because. Each of their personas were so much more larger than life. They weren't fading into the background. They weren't the Ramones. They were Mark, Tom, and Travis from Blink-182. Well, that's if you can pull that off. I do think it's very rare, again, as I said, apart from the Beatles, because the Beatles will pull it off, because then it's like, ooh, if you have all the four characters to bank off, then it becomes kind of like a real marketing ploy. Like, uh, like, like releasing little bits of information i know that was a big deal back in the time you know about each and every member right. so then it's just like hey well, what do you well, think uh, what's what's george's favorite food the, and then people start building this idea and it almost becomes more interesting uh because then it's like who's your favorite that's the backstreet boys to well, yeah. a well tea. that's yeah well they, they, it's always been said that the Beatles were the first boy band, and it's true, not in necessarily style or quality, but for sure in presentation and marketing. Yeah, they're a good example of a follow of a follow up and that that pursues the same idea. That um, failed. That's the whole thing. Well, for it was a big short at the time, for a short no no no, I mean the individuality. In the long haul, only one of them actually ended up with a career that spanned past the lifespan of the band. But the, see. Think about how true that may be on any, uh, in any case where you're looking at a band that does have the signature frontman, and then it's like, well, that's the one person you're looking at. So the same deal may have happened. The person in the back may be playing the drums, may have not had a very, like, like uh, fruitful career to follow. But because you weren't looking at them, then you don't notice it. What you're describing is just an instance where it's like if everybody was looking at all of them simultaneously at once, as they were with NSYNC, as they were with the Backstreet Boys, as they were with the Spice Girls. Really huge for the time, but because people could rattle off the names like clockwork as of the time, then you're going to notice who hits it big later and who's just like, what happened to them? Yeah, whereas it's just a matter of focus. Whereas if you take a band like one of a favorite of mine that's had a resurgence in my discography recently, and I interviewed their lead singer, Power Man Five Thousand, Spider One has talked about at length that previous members are now production partners, and that most of the band, if not all of it, is all new members. So he's the front man. He's the voice of the band, and the band had shakeups and changes and. You don't really notice live that it's a different band because he's the energy, he's the front man. And it, it can work that way too, where when the focus is on one person, you don't really notice the changes, like Steve said. I think that it's interesting, the though we've talked about this a bit before, I think this more in-depth analysis of the effects a front man can have on all aspects of a band, from marketing to, to, to construction, to the face, to the social aspects it's just it's very interesting do you have a preference i'll leave that as a final question for this um oh how how a band is viewed um no i don't think so i mean also one of the most famous cases where a band knew it needed a front man or woman in this case was garbage the band garbage is three well-known talented record producers who said well no one wants to look at us no one wants to hear us sing we do all this interesting techno and technology rock and roll. 
we need a front person. So they went to Scotland. They met a beautiful poor woman who, or poor girl at the time, who didn't had a talent but couldn't get out of Scotland, and said, "You're going to sing with us now, and we're all going to be famous." And it worked. She was <laughs> she was a very rare instance. She was charismatic, beautiful, engaging, and they knew it. They said, we need a leader, we need a front woman, we need someone to help make this band a whole. And that's a very interesting case, because like you said, Steve, it doesn't happen often, but that's a case I can definitely cite. It's, how, it's a matter of how, how big do you want to make it? That's the question. If you know yourselves well enough and you're able to curb your own ego for the sake of whoever you think is going to make your band bigger, then uh, that's when it's really advantageous for you to seek a front man, front woman, whichever. I don't think that I have a preference, personally. I think that what works for the band and gets them in the public eye, I think, is what the preference is for that band. I think it's a case-by-case. Case. I don't really think there's one is more effective than the other. This is one of those cases where any and all are possible and can work. Yeah. And it also doesn't hurt when you have really good music. Yeah. That's the best possible close. <laughs> I, I, I'm elated right now. Steve, take us into our Spam of the Week. Spam of the Week. I have experienced this layer to shimmer brightly in a diamond, pink color, and moving patterns reminiscent of fractal geome ge geometric mathematical movement. Now it is captained by an experienced and proven profitability maker in that industry. In healing work, which is information that we send and energy through them, those webs, for they carry UV blue information to the client's cells during healing work and BME activations. By HHC Music Archive. I think I had a stroke. Yeah, um, it was it cohesive, and then somewhere in the middle, I got lost. That's what I'm saying. Stroke. It was kind it of was poetic like, in the beginning. You're just talking along, and all of a sudden, pink orange. <laughs> you could taste the colors. Flamenco. <laughs> Does anybody else smell toast? Toast. Anybody else smell toast? No, me. Just me. I think I'm yeah. having a stroke. I smell oranges. No, I, that's the shining. That's different. I smell hosts. Uh, wait, who? Hostess. Specific, specifically, John. That's true. He's a little closer. I've been driving for about eight hours, nine hours today, so meh. <laughs> to talk about briefly next week, we are having our guest for the month. Um, I have spoken about him a few times because I am excited to have him on. Um, it is Robert of the Wasties. He's coming on to speak about um, all of his projects that he works on. He is the guitarist and singer in the Wasties. He is the clarinet player and singer in Eli August and the Abandoned Buildings. And he is the lead singer and guitarist in The Rose West. Um, he's going to talk about all of those projects. He's bringing us the album Hesitant Alien by Gerard Way, the former frontman of My Chemical Romance, who was mentioned on our podcast with um, Circadian Clock because they were all fans. Well, mostly Melissa was a fan. Episode 121. Um, so Robert picked this album last year when we first asked him to be on the podcast way in advance. He listened to it and had an opinion, but has decided to still bring it on, even though that opinion is set in stone. So we are eager to listen and uh, comment on said opinion and form a podcast around it. Um, I'm really excited to have him on. He's a talent, and uh, it'll be cool to continue our ongoing one-by-one -one collection of the Wasties. Though Molly is still convinced that we'd have to get Alex, the drummer of the Wasties, very drunk before he'd ever come on the podcast. Wow. Which is not out of the question. We like challenges. Yeah, we do like challenges. That's it's true. true. Um, um, 
And yeah, you would remember that Robert is the the polybanderous individual. Yeah, uh, he, he I remember his introduction, episode forty-four, when we interviewed all the wasties, and he started off now as we went down the line of all the wasties, and he started off, "I am Robert. I am in way too many bands." That's it's true. Like, let's focus on this one today. It's our headliner after all. <laughs> so, um, so yes, so he will be with, with us next week with that album, and until then, remember, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.